Hi everyone, welcome to a brand new episode of the Genre Equality Podcast. I'm Hitzer. I'm Hardy. I'm Isa. Uh, this month, uh, I think it's the first time ever, right, that we've been we've been forced to record remotely. Yep. Yep. Um, I hope the audio is okay with you guys. We're recording on this new thing called Zancaster, so um, hopefully that's all well and good. Like most of the rest of the world, lah, we're all stuck inside, so we can't see each other's faces mm-hmm. uh, but we're still going to keep the show going on because you know uh, everyone's doing podcasts and and chats online these days so why not us right yeah exactly yeah and, and we have like lots to talk about this month man um uh, one of our favorite animes just ended its fourth season my hero academia mm-hmm. uh me and hadi are going to be talking about a new david simon show called the plot against america uh there's devs there's dispatches from elsewhere there is a ton and ton of stuff to to be talking about lah. so i mean let's get into it with probably the biggest uh title that we're going to be talking about this month it is the fourth season of uh, boku no hero uh my hero academia of course for you english-speaking folks uh how did you guys find this Let, let's kick it off with isa man what do you think about my hero academia season four? Oh wow we've raved about this for four seasons now uh pretty yeah. much uh i do think that just in the way that it's decided to frame um the arcs right in this particular season we did get a lot of like they front loaded it with a lot of good stuff right so we had the whole uh what do you call it arc uh overhaul the the whole arc with um overhaul, overhaul right? right and like that yeah. took up the bulk of the series and then we had a much smaller arc with gento kind of like a filler thing before we kind of move into anything different um mm-hmm. yeah i mean like overall arc as we've kind of talked about before uh is a fan favorite right uh in yeah. particular everybody seems to like that because you know you have a very kind of a compelling villain and a lot of kind of growth arc that involved many of our favorite um characters throughout and it's it's great the action is great probably um outside of the act the recent movie itself uh one of the best fight scenes that they've uh, presented to us so far uh mm-hmm. some major kind of like character art groups uh for all of the, our little hero friends uh, yeah and i mean there's very little to kind of like say outside there and it's been pretty outstanding uh, i do wish that they ended it on the overhaul arc instead of like continuing it uh, with the kind of mm-hmm. filler art with Gentle and all of that. But, uh, I mean, uh, it's understandable given, like, they have to kind of fill it out before they proceed with the next season. Yeah, man. Uh, what about you, Hardy? Have you seen uh, season four of My Hero Academia yet? Yeah, I just finished up the festival arc uh, mm-hmm. with Gentle, Criminal, and all that. Uh, yeah, it was kind of a different, different tone and excitement from the first arc, I guess. Yeah. Uh, this was a bit more... Um, a bit more introspective I guess mm-hmm. where a lot of the the students are taking note of the the, the, the crazy year that they had like, especially those involved in the overall arc especially those who were fighting like, against mm-hmm. the Yakuza yeah mm, the work uh, hero program right? yeah so it was yeah. interesting to just all of them just taking a breath you know and like not having to be in peril again for the hundredth time in their first year <laughs> You yeah. know, so it was nice just to see them being kids, lah. You know, and and coming out with this um, extravagant uh, dance sequence thing, lah. Yeah, yeah. 
so I enjoyed that thoroughly even though I do agree that it is a bit anticlimactic when you compare to how insane the overhaul arc was yeah mm. yeah but I really liked I, I really enjoyed the relationship that they built with the, the little girl uh, especially uh, Midoriya and uh, Ari and uh, yeah Ari and Lemillion and Lemillion yeah yes man um, that, yeah I, I feel that that is one of the best like new relationships in this series lah Mm, yeah. Oh man, sure. I, I agree. Did Did you guys feel? I mean, to me lah, I felt like season four felt uh significantly darker than the first three seasons. Yes, yes. Oh, a lot. Sure. There was a huge sense of high life and death stakes amongst uh the overhaul arc. Uh, all the fights. You know, you you never quite knew whether someone was gonna die, whether someone was gonna live, whether someone was gonna lose their powers. Yeah. Um. I yep. I think we in general, you know, the fight with Lemillion really really. Oh was the, yeah was the first time in My Hero Academia, I think, history where one of the good guys really, like, I thought they were going to die, like, for real, you know? Yeah. yeah. Because I thought it was either going to be Lemillion or Night Eye, right? or both of them. Mm. But yeah. they're not just Night, Night Eye. Lah. Correct. Yeah. Lah. Yeah. And, and on the flip side also, after all that was done, I kind of enjoyed also the small breather that we took, you know, a bit lighter yeah. in the action. You know, it, it's kind of focused on a really C-level villain, mostly about... A uh, gentle, gentle criminal, and um, this La cute little, le, yeah, this and this cute little concert like school show that they're gonna put on, mm-hmm. which is different lah. And then at the end, you kind of setting up next season about how um, fuck, who is uh the fire guy's name again? Endeavor. Oh. Endeavor, yeah. How yeah. how like Endeavor is gonna take over as the new number one uh hero in Japan ah. So, I I I think it it hits all the right beats, but I do feel like. Like most My Hero Academia seasons, and I think this is kind of a recurring complaint. Uh, mm-hmm. it always it always feels front loaded. Like the first, the first three quarters of the season is always like really hype, and then the yeah. the last quarter feels a bit, I don't know, like like out of place lah. I think it happened last season. It happened in season two. Yeah. What, what do you guys think? It's just a positioning. Like I felt that they should have started the this the the coming season right with this mm-hmm. festival and then move on into the you know the meat of the story yeah mm. and no, i think I mean, it's the same thing la. like last season should have ended with the uh forest up mm. yeah 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 so like you want them to end on a high note basically yeah la, we're all the, the, the traditional way la, you know we're all the action and all is right at the, the back end of the series la. i guess like so. gradually I'm... gradually build up to a climax la. correct yeah yeah. I think a lot of it has to do with how the manga has been written, right? And and mm. just like it's always like big arc, small arc, big arc, small arc. Yeah, yeah. Traditionally has worked for a lot of anime, like typical shonen anime like your Naruto's, your Bleach, your Hunter Hunter, all of these have that kind of like breathing space in between, but because it's a long running series, they don't take breaks between seasons. Uh yeah. it works a lot better that way. Um, mm-hmm. So I I do feel like it's kind of a logistical issue, and I'm not sure if there will be an opportunity for them to adjust that. Um, mm-hmm. But I I mean I understand like given this whole new hero ranking thing and the setup with like the introduction of Hawk into the anime, uh, yeah. and all the uh, the top ranked heroes right now. I mean it's understandable since that comes off immediate uh, immediately comes off the back of the festival arc. So um, I don't know if they can change that necessarily, but uh, hopefully I I do prefer uh, what you guys have have suggested, for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I I 
like you said, like it's a direct and almost a bit too faithful adaptation of the manga where they follow beat for beat, right? Yep. Mm. So so they are they are basically taking like X number of issues, and this is going to be season four, season five, season six. So you can't really gradually ramp up the stakes to like the big finale, lah. Yeah. So um, it's it's not something they can address, I I think. But I, I'm I, that that being said, like I still thought that you know, this was a great season. I enjoyed. Is, yeah. Everything mm. I enjoyed the light beats, I enjoyed the heavy beats, the darkness and and everything lah, you know. Yeah, the last the, the 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 second arc for me was very wholesome, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, mm. like, even the gentle criminals arc. I mean, his introduction and his entire thing wasn't so dark. It was mm. a lot of very like easy breezy kind of feelings lah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, that's really the roots of the show. Like, it is a, a young adult show, I guess. A, yeah. a young adult uh, anime. So, it, and also that arc only works... Like, you were saying that you should, like, restructure that arc, right? Perhaps. But I think the, the arc only works after Overhaul because the arc was meant for Aerie. Yeah, correct, correct, correct. I agree. Yeah. So, that's why I said that it should be next season. Oh, yeah. right, right, like right. Like, the beginning of next season where you have the gentle arc and then the Aerie getting to know Aerie and all that stuff, lah. Yeah, yeah. But right, I kind of like that they ended it with Eri smiling and being happy and all that stuff. Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, and like like seeing Bakugo like so invested in yeah. like being in <laughs> being a musician, right? Yeah. So th- there's a great character growth there also, you see, which I and I enjoyed lah. Yeah. I know it's always been kind of one arc, and and I I enjoy seeing Endeavor trying to step up as well. You know, he he all he also feels vulnerable at this time. Correct. Yeah. He yeah. does. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's it's going to be super interesting because Hawk is a fascinating kind of character study of, mm. like, a like a protege, right, essentially. Uh, mm. And uh, that's going to play very interestingly as opposed to, you know, where Endeavor is right now and trying to fill uh, All Might's shoes, which he's struggling to because he's starting to realize that being, being number one is a lot more than just, you know, being the top of the ranks. Um, what does it truly mean to be the number one hero, to be a symbol of, of, of peace, right? Mm. Uh, so yeah, we'll see where this goes. Uh, yeah, uh, I I do. Okay, question: uh, Did both of you end up watching the uh, Heroes Rising movie in the end? I couldn't find. Uh, it. No, yeah, like uh, it was supposed to come to Singaporean theaters, but obviously, like the rest of the world, yeah, our cinemas are shut down. We're locked down at home, and I couldn't. I could find some copies online, but I couldn't find it with English subs. Uh, so, right, right. Uh, so I haven't seen it yet. Time to learn okay. Japanese. <laughs> well, because of COVID nineteen, right? We're gonna have a exactly. Yeah, <laughs> best time. Why not? Um. Yeah. So, yeah. A- anyways, my my question had to do a lot with like if you guys had seen the movie, right? How did mm-hmm. the placement and the timing of the movie kind of affect how what you saw this season, right? Because we get two like massive fights, uh, mm. between between what happens in the movie and obviously the fight with overhaul. One with a much yeah. older um, Midoriya and one obviously Midoriya as he is right now. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to see if there was any sort of basis of comparison, if it kind of influenced that. Because for me, having watched the movie early this year, right, kind of in the middle of the the, the actual ongoing season, um, yeah. like it, it, it makes me incredibly excited. But the fight, as good as the fight with Overhaul was, it pales in comparison to the fight that they had in the movie. Mm. Um, what was the know, movie called again? Is it Heroes Rising? I Okay. Oh, yeah. I, yeah. F- I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so yeah. Uh, um, but but of course, since you guys haven't seen it yet, maybe we'll save that f- conversation for a different time when you guys sure. uh, are able to. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, because uh, actually, if you guys wanted to hear uh, Isa's review of the movie, like it was, he did it like back in our January episode. So if you wanna get like some initial thoughts, Isa was actually in Japan. He caught the movie. Uh, unfortunately, uh, apparently there were no subtitles, right, when you watched it. Yeah, there were no subtitles, so I was just going on with my kind of middling uh, Japanese. Uh, but the story that, was just pure imagery, right? Yeah, it was just pure imagery. Like you didn't need much. I'm sure I missed out a lot of like great dialogue. Uh, that mm. I didn't quite understand, but I didn't need it, you know, to enjoy the movie. That being said, like, like kind of going back to my earlier point, I would almost rather kind of put off watching the movie until I get to that point in My Hero Academia. Because, you know, like if I had seen the movie, the I feel like the fight with Overhaul wouldn't have seemed as epic, you know, with, with Eri clinging to his back and him be, finally being able to go 100 for the first time in the show. Because yep. of Eri. Yep. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it felt like this moment that you've been working so hard for and then you finally got to that moment and it was this big euphoric cheer. But yeah. if I if I had seen the movie, I saw him go 100% already with ease, like, uh, it might have, like, lessened the impact of that moment, uh, maybe. Ah, uh, okay. Alright, so I can't, I can't really offer anything because it's a bit of a spoiler as to how yeah. that turns out. Uh, but yeah, I, I do understand where you're coming from and I was just curious if you guys have and if it did affect, because it did for me, like, it did, it did bring the overhaul fight a, a, a notch down just because mm-hmm. I you know I know what this child or uh, these children are capable of as they grow older right yeah. Uh, but yeah I mean uh, yeah we'll save it for a different time when, when everybody kind of had, uh, has a chance to watch the movie yeah man uh, I once like complained I felt like uh, Todoroki was a bit like underserved this this season like yeah. uh, we didn't really see much of him except for the, his remedial training with yeah. the kids which was cute I did really cute. enjoy that those few yeah. episodes yeah, Todoroki and Bakugo being the the kids left behind in summer school is a bit is is interesting because you know the like best. the i the idea is they're the best right like yep. they they sh- by just virtue of power level and fighting ability they're above Midoriya but like you know they don't have the hero sensibility yet like which Midoriya has. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I do think that with with Endeavor kind of coming to the forefront with things, we will definitely see a lot more Todoroki in the upcoming season. Yeah, so yeah. That could be partially why. Uh, Todoroki looking worried as as he saw his father fighting on on TV added like a nice little wrinkle to that family dynamic because you know yeah. we've only seen him hating his dad, but you know I think they're gonna go on some reconciliation thing. Yep, that's highly likely for sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you guys know if like production has been affected by COVID nineteen or anything for the next season? Not sure. Um, it is still slated for the for the summer release next year, so we will see. I mean, like there's been no news out of the studio at the moment, mm. um, but yeah, I, I I don't know, I don't know. I think things in Jap- not really sure how things in Japan are going and how it's affected the studios in particular. Uh, it does seem that most of the animes up till January next year are slated to come out uh, on time. Do you reckon it's because the animators can work at home? I do think it's possible that Interesting. Uh, most of them have kind of uploaded, uh, offloaded their work to freelancers mm. as well. So, um, I mean, like, not too tapped into like the current industry, what what the industry is doing in in this uh, time that we're living in. Uh, mm. But it seems like there are very few delays, uh, as far as I know. Um, mm-hmm. So I don't think we should be we will have to wait um, additionally mm. for this to come out. 
Because I've been reading a ton of articles about Disney and, and DreamWorks uh, and how their production hasn't hasn't missed a beat at all. The the animators are just you know working from home, mm, and yeah. and everything scheduled to come out on time. Obviously, it's very a very different thing for live action shows. Uh, like like I mean, one of our like me and Isa's favorite shows, like Better Call Saul, is probably going to be a long time until we see its last season, yeah. just because they're supposed to start production now, and we we don't know when you know they can ever get large groups of people to shoot again. So uh, it's a good thing for animation, but mm. but bad thing for live action, lah. Yeah, I mean, like uh, later on, I'm going to be talking about Ghost in the Shell, um, yeah, which just came out on Netflix. Uh, but the only kind of uh, production hiccup that they've hit is that they can't provide dubs for anyone. Oh. Yeah, so if you're watching it, uh, they they give you a notification before you start the season and they'll tell you that oh, you know, um there's some audio there's some audio titles that aren't out yet mm. because mm-hmm. we are prioritizing the safety of our actors, our voice actors, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, which which is nice, right? For people to kind of let let them know, you know, like you don't have an English dub because, you know, we we want to make sure that we keep these things under control. Um yeah. so, I, there are instances of delays. I think it's not the full experience for people who watch dubs anyway. Um, mm. But yeah, so uh, hopefully, like uh, we continue to see a lot more content out of the animation side of things in the entertainment right. world. Yeah, but I mean, uh, people who watch dubs are lame anyway. So fuck them. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Donny, <laughs> you all know that I watch the dubs. <laughs> Subs, not dubs. <laughs> I'm a proponent of the dubs just because I don't want to read anything. That's why. <laughs> no, like Hadi. Whenever we talk to Hadi or meet him anywhere, or when he does anything, he's multitasking, lah. So if he can't hear it, then it affects you yeah. know, your ability to en- actually invest in the product. Yeah. So I get, I get where you're coming from, lah. Mostly because you're a busy man. Yeah. And also because the American dubs for for my hero is really good. Yeah. 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 I said that as well. I, I mean, that as well. it's it's kind of like, uh, do you watch a Studio Ghibli in in uh, subs or dubs, right? Because <laughs> like, she does also. I'm yeah, sorry. no, because no, no, that's the thing. Like Ghibli has amazing dubs. Yeah, right. Yeah. They really, really do. Like they spend a lot of time making sure the translations are correct and like making sure that everything kind of syncs up with the frame, and they mm-hmm. get great, great voice actors as well. So yeah. at the whatever allows you to consume the material in a way that you enjoy I'm gonna leave it to you but I mean like for me personally like I much prefer subs just because like the they f- it was made for that you know mm. uh, I, I understand that, that yeah so of course uh, and in, in any ways even if I watch dubs even if I watch English shows my subs are on anyway because I I, I just want to understand better uh. yeah so sure. I, I I always read while I watch so you know that's just my thing for me mm. personally yeah uh. Uh, anyways, uh, how would you guys uh, rate this latest season of My Hero Academia? And any final thoughts? Uh, I'll give it an eight out of ten. Yeah, I had mm-hmm. a lot of fun with it. Um, yeah, I, I I can't wait for next season. Yeah. Uh, same. I'll rate it an eight out of ten as well. Uh, what about you, Hadi? Uh, sorry, uh, Isa. Yeah, same here. Uh, eight out of ten. Um, it's good stuff. Like it's it's been. My hero is is something that I consistently look forward to watching every week, right? And uh, in yeah. this day and age of like being able to binge watch shit, uh, mm. you know, it's it's very different uh, experience, right? Something that I haven't had in a while, short mm. of like say maybe Westworld or, or things you know, like that, lah. Yeah. Like, yeah, 
Yep, yep, definitely. I, I, I enjoy watching it week to week as well. I watch it like on Saturday night, you know. Uh, like I will, I will check over all the streaming sites at like one a.m. to see whether it's up or not. I will keep refreshing. <laughs> it's one of those shows that like makes me very excited to watch it, yeah, yeah, for sure, man. Yeah, definitely. Uh, next thing we're gonna go into is uh, I, wow. Um, it's a show called The Plot Against America. Oh no. And for a lot of people, right? Um. I don't know whether you consider this genre. I'm almost, I'm almost cheating a bit because it feels so ungenre-like. Yes. Uh, against America, but it is alternate history. So it's yeah. genre. Like if we if we review the men in the high castle, right? How is this different uh, plot-wise? Just not not in terms of tone or style, but plotting, right? It's the yeah. same as the men in high castle. So why not the plot against America, right? More yes, correct. More or less. More or less, yeah. So yeah. I feel like. I, I, I do feel like I'm cheating by putting this in, but but I think we are justified in doing so. We are. It's alt history. Yeah. Alt history is genre. Definitely, definitely. Yeah. Okay, so if you're unfamiliar, this is by acclaimed author and journalist David Simon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he created and show ran a number of brilliant shows uh, oh, yeah. since he since he came to television. You know, like yeah, The Wire, The Deuce, Generation Kill, uh, Tremaine. Tremaine. Uh, you know, uh, the lots of really really amazing shows uh, that. That follows a lot of very real world things, you know. Mm-hmm. His his most famous work, like you mentioned, uh, The Wire, uh, told the story about Baltimore on all levels. You know, it followed yeah. cops and drug dealers and dog workers and politicians and teachers and children and journalists. Yeah. So it it, let, it really lets us understand the social economic ecosystem of a city in a very humanist way. Yes. And and he co-created that series, The Wire, with a guy named Ed Burns, and he hasn't worked with Ed Burns since The since Wire. Since The Wire, yeah. And they have re-themed to adapt uh, Philip Roth's uh, prescient novel, uh, The Plot Against America for HBO. Yeah. Uh, okay, so just let me quickly lay out the premise if you're sure. unfamiliar. It's a six-part miniseries. It imagines an alternate history in which the United States turns towards fascism during the World War II. Uh, it's told through the eyes of a working-class Jewish family in New Jersey. And we follow you know, their country engulfed in anti-Semitism as this aviation hero slash xenophobic populist Charles Lindbergh defeats uh, Franklin Roosevelt in the 1940 presidential election. Uh, yep. If you aren't a history buff, right, like me and Hadi, uh, Lindbergh, in real life, was mm-hmm. running on an America first policy, um, yeah. was an admirer of Hitler and sought to keep US out of uh, World War II. He was an isolationist. Yep. So in this, in this story, after Lindbergh wins, he embarks on a program of like government-sponsored Jewish resettlement. Um, immediately, the topicality is apparent due to the story's uh, parallel with with Donald Trump, mm-hmm. and maybe that's why this was the best time to finally bring Roth's book to the screen, because the world that he invented uh, and what and what's happening to contemporary America is, is hard to ignore. You know, you have a demagogic president who is who openly expresses admiration for a foreign dictator. You have a surge of right wing nationalism and isolationism. You have yeah. polarization, you have false narratives, you have xenophobia, the demonization of others. Lindbergh's political rise it plays out a lot like Trump. Um, and because, you know, at first he's satirized by his critics, right? Mm-hmm. They believe that he will sink, uh, but he proves immune to it. He's labeled an airplane pilot of opinions, the same way that Trump was labeled a reality show uh, star. Uh, and he's treated as a dis- disqualifier. People did take him seriously, you know? But mm-hmm. but David Simon and Philip Roth in interviews given right want to want to make sure that Donald Trump is not Lindbergh you know because Lindbergh for all his flaws yep. is a, is a legitimately great man 
like Lindbergh was a war hero. He's brave. He's extremely well spoken and extremely yeah. intelligent. He's infinitely more credible than Trump is, right? In a weird way, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, they're both hateful people, <laughs> but like this guy can lead the country. Yeah. And, and and so, given your political understanding of what's happening today and what happened in the nineteen forties, and your familiarity with David Simon and mm-hmm. his past work, what well, what did you think about the plot against America, Hadi? Okay, so. This takes place in an alternative 1940s election. <laughs> Not so alternative, but yeah. I mean, because the the guy that ran against uh, Roosevelt during this period of time was another businessman, not Lindbergh. Correct, yeah. 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 But Lindbergh was uh, very outspoken, very isolationist, all this is right. Lah. So mm. when... But what happens when... I mean, it is interesting to just point, you know, just point it and say, oh, look, it's like an allegory of Trump. Yeah. Mm. But it's a lot more sinister than that, also. Yeah, like, yeah. Trump is—I mean, as much as he's a moron and you know a lot of things that we can say about him for the next hour, um, Lindbergh has this kind of sinister uh, appeal because of the fact that there is uh, fascism still alive in the world, where you have—I mean, it still is. <laughs> no, no, but not in the way that it was back in the 1940s of, with of course, an yeah, entire yeah. country, right? Where Hitler, you have Hitler, yeah. and he's yeah. you know he's uh, I mean. Spoiler alert! I guess he's elbowing, you know, he's uh him uh just shaking the the hands of Hitler and all that stuff. It just, it was such a uh image that that just didn't make sense, you know. Especially mm-hmm. if you knew America, if you you hear the stories of America in the forties and all that, where there was still a lot of weird ra- racials, racial issues and all that. But mm-hmm. this just emptied up to a hundred. And what I loved about David Simon's, uh, I mean, about this show is the fact that it slow burns, mm. right? It it, it introduces it introduces the world to you, and it slowly shows the 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 moral decay that happens in these six episodes. Yeah. And how uh just how your your entire life can just turn around in an instant. Mm-hmm. I love the political intrigue between, like you know, um, race traitors like the rabbi. Sorry, Begelsdorf. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and like uh, the naivety of like uh, Winona Ryder's character. I can't remember her name. To a certain extent, Begelsdorf was naive as well. Also, yeah, yeah, definitely. He was even more naive because of the fact that he felt that his words were powerful enough to change the heart of a man who clearly is racist, lah. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah. He's sort of de- deluding himself. Correct, you know, and you yeah. and as the thing progresses, you see how he's being more, I uh, being more pushed aside. His words are no longer as important and all that. And you see that rise of anti-Semitism through the 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 episodes, and it just it just got your heart pumping, like it's not like high action or anything like that, but it just got you worried for the characters that. We intri- we are introduced to lah, and just like how you know, the wire it goes down to you know the 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 family you know the nucleus of the family and all that stuff you know. Mm-hmm. Same thing here lah, you know where we explore just the on the boots on the ground now what's happening within these Jewish communities and how they are affected by something as sinister as a president who is clearly anti-Semite lah, and whose cabinet has Mr. Ford, who yeah another very very a prominent uh, Nazi supporter. Uh, yeah. In reality, though, to be fair, Lindbergh did uh, because Roosevelt was incredibly popular. Mm-hmm. Uh, he actually Lindbergh actually uh, went away from the isolationist uh, thing, lah. 
Lindbergh yeah. actually only did that after after, after Pearl Harbor. Harbor. Yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So because of Pearl Harbor, in this case, I think Pearl Harbor never happened. Uh okay so right? this is this is adaptation of the book in 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 the book right uh Pearl Harbor was the thing that changed everything back to normal uh like like, like people like finally saw that we have to get into this war etc etc yeah. what what David Simon does is is smarter I feel yeah. by not by not letting it happen so it it, it creates a, a very ambiguous future for this world yep. You know, like not, things don't just turn back to normal just because of, just because of uh, a a piece a speech by the first lady yeah. because of Pearl Harbor. You yeah. know, there is, there is uh, an uncertain future for these people, like uh, and, and much like us, lah. Because like I think they want you to have this sense of uncertainty yeah. with with um, with America going into ele- the election year this year, mm-hmm. and 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 the show ends with an election as well. But you don't and find, you don't out, find out who won. Right? Yeah. So yeah, the yeah. guy who uh, took over was the the presidential candidate actually. Uh, ran against Roosevelt and lost. In real life, yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Um, what I like most about the plot against America is that it's not like the Man in High Castle or or even The Handmaid's Still. It is very much a parlor drama. Like it's a drama yes. that's set inside one living room. Uh, from the point of view of one family and and how it affects them. Like I I discussed this with Hardy a few days ago about how like when I watched The Wire, I almost. Laugh when I think about other cop shows about how cartoonish they are, <laughs> yeah. you know. And, and and when I watch Generation Kill, I mm-hmm. I laugh about how cartoonish like other war stories. War stories, are. yeah. So when I w- watch this, right, and this is this is Simon's first attempt at like a alt history genre kind of thing. Yeah. And I almost I almost laugh at how cartoonish other dystopian tales are. Yeah. It it almost feels to like too black and white, you know. And from this point of view. You see everything through a very humanist lens, and even even the Jewish characters that agree with Lindbergh, right, and support him, and as misguided as they are, like you understand why. why? Yes, correct. Yeah, you know, like like the Levin's teenage son, as annoying as he is, you know, sees Lindbergh as a war hero. Mm-hmm. Uh, Winona Ryder's character falls in love with Rabbi Bengelsdorf, who's like the token Jew, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you can see how they're like seduced. By by the power of of being in in an administration such, such as that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, man. Uh, but like, it's never just thoughtful debate about policy or speechifying like like Aaron Sorkin does. You know. Yeah. Uh, like like David Simon really likes to show us the very human aspect of flawed institutions, and and how those pressures cause us to think what we think and do what we do. Uh. Uh, it's yep. not it's it's human feeling in the end like an institutional feeling uh, and he does the same here uh which i think it it makes it a very much more nuanced and infinitely richer dystopian tale mm-hmm. uh and it's understated uh it's understated scenes kind of create like this microcosm of larger scale portraits of of sea change in in the political landscape like. yeah and and i think this is uh, an excellent excellent show man yeah i mean and it shows you again that Again, it's not that the majority are racist. It's just that the majority is quiet, mm. and you could tell here, lah. You know that they f- they it felt like they were left alone. That the Jews becoming more isolated from the rest of the society, or forcefully integrated into it. It mm. it it is it, fascism at a very weird, uh, like a uh, Darth Sidious before he revealed himself, lah. Where he was the chancellor, lah. A, a little know? bit la, like it's not as like dramatic as, yeah, as yeah, yeah. like the the vicious scenes of of rape in the Handmaid's Tale, or yes, it's yes, not yes, as, yes, yeah. or it's not like Nazi tanks like uh in the streets of America, like but, in the Man in High Castle. Correct. 
but but it's better because it's real. Eh? The oppression happens yes. gradually. And it happens through, scarier. Yeah, yeah, it happens to rationali- through rationali- rationalizations and and double talk, double talk and. Yeah. You know, and you get you get to see very slowly streets are empty of Jewish children. There are swastikas defacing Jewish graves. Uh, uh, police no- knowingly nod at violent counter protesters, which is kind of what happened in like Charlottesville, for example. Yep. You know, the the racism is becoming scary and more open and more casual because you, you have permission from the top guy. The top guy says, "Okay, man." Yeah. 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 So it, it's not sens- sensationalistic as much as it is subtle. Mm-hmm. You know, like like even like one of the early early episodes that showed uh, the Levin family being kicked out of a hotel, right? Yeah. You know. Uh. So that 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 really is when like th- things kick into high gear. Yeah. Uh. I I'm just curious, Hadi. Have you ever read the book? No. That's why I'm. I'm I mean, you told me about the book and all that, and I can't wait to actually read it, lah. Yes. Yeah. Uh. The book is very interesting because it it, it plays out as like a biography of Philip. Roth's youth just oh. in an alternate history so oh, okay. it, it comes from a very child's eye point of view so you don't know where his father is coming from you don't know where his uncle is coming from his mother and all of that and, and what Simon wanted to do was kind of like expand expand it a bit like, and I think he did a great job in letting us know where where the where the fascist sympathizers come from and, and why even though they're Jewish they might think the way they think uh, his his uncle who went off to who, who went to Canada to join the to join World War II you know like what was he feeling uh, and and the whole disagreement between the uncle and his father about you know his father is obviously very outspoken, but all he does is you know and you saw the last episode right yeah when they got into that big fight at the dinner table and he yeah. correctly calls him out like all you do is like sit in front of your radio and complain and complain you know, I went off to I went off to fucking war you know, so I I actually did something it's very it's very interesting like, like what would you do in times of crisis you know yeah exactly. Yeah, yeah, and and there isn't an allegorical distance that genre usually affords here because it just feels so real and, and sadly true to today. Yeah, okay, it's true. Yeah, I mean, man. yeah, uh, and that's a sc- ah, that's so scary. Yeah, man. Uh, you got any like concluding thoughts before you you give your rating? Um, David Simon again just blows this out of the water, lah. Um. Mm-hmm. I feel, felt that this mini series is great. I mean, I don't think that's gonna. I mean, it's a mini series, right? So that's it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, really well told, really well acted. Um, everything done to kind of a really nice uh po- polish lah. Mm. Um, I really thoroughly enjoyed this series. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I thought I thought all the acting was uh, superb as well. I thought yeah. Winona Ryder like gives one of her best performances yep. I've seen in a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I, I know, like she's you know on Stranger Things, and she's a big part of there But that you don't really see meaty acting from Winona Ryder there. Yeah, yeah. So she's fantastic here, and and I think that this is is a very smart, uh, unsimplistic good versus evil narrative. Like it's very sharp, uh, and it's and the ending is darker than the novel even. So this this is fantastic. You know, uh, I think it is an eight point five out of ten for me. What about you, Hadi? I'll give it an eight point five too. Yeah. Excellent, yeah, well super deserved. highly, yeah, super highly recommended show, man. Yep, yep. yep, yep. Uh, next, uh, Isa Fung will be joining me. We'll be talking about uh, a new show called Devs. Oh my! It's it's also it's also a mini series. Um, it comes from writer and filmmaker Alex Garland, yes, who does. has kind of kind of um become known for this um, pensive, mind bending sci fi movies just rooted in just enough real world science to kind of leave you hanging on a 
on the ledge of a full-blown existential crisis, you know? Like, I mean, I know he started out with, like, 28 Days Later and Dread, but his own movies, his directorial movies, like the stunning AI drama Ex Machina mm-hmm. uh, and 2018's Annihilation, uh, are all very, like, ambitious and abstract and, and mind-melting. Yep. Uh, with, with Devs, Garland makes the first-time-ever leap into TV with another challenging slice of what the fuckery uh, it's an eight-hour limited series, and, and Garland has been clear that this is a contained story with an ending. Uh, uh, it gives the writer-director kind of a larger cinematic landscape to meditate on his sci-fi filmmaking fascinations. And in keeping, Death feels like a creative cousin to both films. You know, In terms of craftsmanship, Death expands on a lot of the techniques of Annihilation, you know, embracing experimental, injury, uh, experimental imagery and sound design to unnerve and disorient and immerse the viewer while conceptually it shares ex machina's fascination with our rapidly advancing real world technology you know and and if you've seen the finale of Darfs, you know it's purposefully intended as a spiritual companion piece to that movie you know ex machina yep. and what death turns out to be um so this show is is uh is is very beautiful uh breathtaking filmmaking first of all Yes. Uh, and it's very, it's very paranoid, and it's so paranoid because uh, it feels very, a bit like Plot Against America. It feels very close to home, uh, in in a sense that the technology isn't so wild and out there, you know. Like big data is already kind of doing this to us. Yeah. So, um, what 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 do you think about devs upon having seen all eight episodes? Uh, <clears throat> well, overall. Uh, I did enjoy it, right? I mean, I have a few bones to pick in there. I do feel like Alex Garland is starting to uh, set into his own kind of aesthetic. Um, well, his own kind of aesthetic, right? There's so many shots uh, here that could fit into X Mark, you know, would fit into Annihilation. Uh, I really, really enjoyed um, the soundtrack. Um, by I, I can't remember Jeff Borrow and uh, Ben Salisbury, yeah. uh, from formerly of Portishead. Yeah, so like it's an amazing soundtrack, and we've got a couple of tracks by the Insects as well, which I thought yeah. were, were chilling and and kind of disturbing. I, I spent a lot of nights watching uh, mm-hmm. Devs, and you know, uh, just in the stillness of night, having that soundtrack was was it had the intended effect. Uh, I think that's something that stood out to me. Uh, of course, it is beautiful and it is pensive as we've come to expect of Garland. Uh, mm-hmm. And overall, like the questions that it asks and the answers, I mean, the questions that it asks are great. The answers yeah. that it provides, not as great. But like uh, overall, like, I really did enjoy it. Like before we go into any sort of like spoiler territory. Sweet. Um, I, okay, like for those who are confused as to what devs is, uh, I'm going to like basically lay out a, a, a small premise, <laughs> but um, even after watching Devs, you might still be confused. So like you know, you just have to see it. La. So it, it kind of stars uh, Sonoya Mizudo, uh, yeah. who is uh, one of Garland's regular collaborators. You may remember her as the the AI dance the the dancing AI Kyoko in Ex Machina. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's also the otherworldly humanoid in uh, Annihilation's climax, the one that's mirroring uh, Natalie Portman. Yep. Uh, so for, for the first time she's starring in a lead role uh, she plays Lily Chan Lily is a computer programmer working at a cutting edge uh, Silicon Valley tech startup called Amaya with her boyfriend Sergey until he gets promoted to the company's uh, devs team it's mysterious you know and then he turns up dead in an apparent suicide the very next day Lily doesn't buy it and after teaming up with her ex-boyfriend uh, her investigations lead her to suspect Amaya's owner Forrest uh, played by Parks and Recreation's own uh, Nick Offerman. Uh, 
leading her to uncover the potentially dangerous and world-altering research that he's doing in deaths. Uh, and, and I really like Nick Offerman here anyway. He, he plays like a very different role. Yeah, he's kind he of morally ambiguous tech titan, but he has his signature swaggering wig uh, turned down and his all-accessible humanity dialed up to 11. Um, what is Devs? Uh, Devs is one of those shows that is particularly difficult to review without spoiling it because I think the meat of the ideas is hidden behind veils of mystery and secrecy. Yeah. And the series takes its time doling out that particular mystery over the course of the season. Yeah. But what I can say is that Devs is about Garland's fascination with determinism. Mm, Death yes. is about using groundbreaking quantum computers that Forrest and his team are working on. So they're working on a predictive algorithm based on deterministic principles to predict with 100% accuracy the past, present, and future of organisms and thus shatter the illusion of free will. Hmm. So the most, the most basic premise is factor in enough Im- information, account for quantum mechanics, and provide enough computing or processing power, and you can theoretically see everything that has happened, is happening, and will happen through pure deterministic math. Mm-hmm. And if, if that is the case, then free will doesn't exist because you know this computer knows what you're going to do. Uh, suffice to say that Devs is a heady piece of writing. So what, what, what do you think about it, how it, it deals with the determinism versus free will, free will thing? Oh, man. Okay, so it's very hard to discuss a lot of this without like if if you don't have kind of like a background into what exactly con- quantum computing is or what exactly like determinism is and all of that yeah. uh I, I don't know it's how how do we go about talking about these things without mm. spoiling well i i mean i guess i can just look at how what he's trying to do with these things like uh yeah. it's he's trying to melt this with a sense of 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 religion right yeah, I, like like he's he's using religious allegory and a strong strong dose of this genre flourish by by kind of like what we think of God is what people will think of technology like there is in devs you know so there's a lot of that metaphor going on uh, especially with devs being caught what it is in the finale uh, and and yeah. and it explains just enough about the philosophical and scientific concepts of determinism and quantum computing and quantum physics yeah uh devs kind of leans heavier into science than fiction without becoming a physics lecture mm. and i think garland is a wise enough filmmaker to keep his accidental story spiced up with unpredictable twists and shocking jokes of violence like more traditional genre content like, you know there is there are spies there's mystery there's murders and things like that so it kind of keeps the whole pensive uh, brooding aspect to a mi- not to a minimum, but it it, it balances it out. Uh, you yeah. Know? So there's excitement and there's thoughtfulness as well. Yeah. I mean, the f- I I have no problems with the pacing. I think like um, much like Ex Machina, the pacing did fare really well, which I didn't feel was as good in Annihilation. Um, mm. So yeah, I totally agree with you on that. Um, okay. So what did you have any issues with with uh, with devs in in general? A, a little bit, like, I thought it was... Okay, I mean, the good points is I thought it was very smart. I thought it was one of the most beautiful shows I've ever seen. Garland I, is, like, yeah. an incredible filmmaker. Yep, yes. But I think it can be inconsistent and occasionally threatens to teeter to tether too far into intellectualism over emotional storytelling. Mm, yeah. the, the, char- the character work, I feel wasn't great and yeah. i was kind of i was never invested in lily or, or anybody else yeah. uh i was invested in the story uh but garland is a 
I think a clever writer and he layers in slow burn reveals to mm-hmm. keep the material grip, gripping even at its most ponderous moments. Yep. So it, it's, a, it's a story that's like frustrating in broad strokes but if you're patient it does cycle inwards towards greater complexity and nuance with each episode until it arrives at its core truth. Uh, so your mileage may vary on whether the destination is worth the long journey yeah. and there's no doubt that death lacks the sheer force of impact that Garland has with his more tightly wound feature productions uh, mm. because you know they're, they're tighter they're shorter yeah. uh, and even if, even if some of the final reveals feel somewhat underwhelming I think it it does open uh, a Pandora's box of existential quandaries that, that gives you a lot to think about which is what Alex Garland is great at doing mm. yeah okay yeah for, I think for me the acting I, I, Offer, I think Offerman did a decent job right mm-hmm. uh, so far like very out of his kind of like usual scope of work I think he did a decent job but at the same time at the back of my mind right I'm thinking okay you've got this uh, um, insidious tech genius uh, leader of his own company incredibly powerful man and I'm also thinking about Oscar Isaac's role in mm. uh, in Ex Machina right and how yep. different that is and how much more powerful and sinister that was you know yep. uh, and I don't know if Offerman actually managed anything even close to that, right? That was one of the first um, kind of issues that I had. There were moments in time where his, it lacked, um, his performance lacked emotional... Um, Heft. It, yeah. It, I didn't feel the kind of gravitas that role needed from him, you know? Mm. And that occasionally brought me out of, of, of um, the experience. Uh, so Noya, I mean, I thought what was the other sci-fi one that we reviewed that she was in when she played the quirky doctor. Uh, quirky doctor, I can't, I can't quite remember what that was. Uh, yeah, I can't remember. Okay, um, but shifting her as like the main character is problematic. She's not great, an mm-hmm. an actress, right? Obviously, she was a dancer, martial artist, model. Uh, oh, um, you're talking about Maniac, right? Oh yes, Maniac. That's right. So I, I, I thought yeah. with Maniac, you know, maybe we would get a, a, a interesting performance out of her for here. But her, her, Sonoya as Lily fell flat a lot for me. Mm. There were times when it was very, uh, it felt very vacant. You know, mm. uh, points in time where like just she, she has physical presence, right? Mm. But when it comes, for example, uh, this one particular scene where she's being kind of. Uh, in the uh, psychiatrist's office or the psychologist's office, right? And they're having that conversation to and fro and all that. There were moments in time when the camera just like sets in on her face and I can't read anything out of that, you know? Yep. And uh, as clever as her character is supposed to be, right? Mm-hmm. And given that that comes off the back of her uh, her outburst earlier on in the day or the day before. Yeah, with Kenton, right? With Kenton, right? Like yeah. that that didn't feel kind of in line with with what I expected um, the performance mm-hmm. to be. You know, so I do feel like at certain really key points that that fell through. Uh, but I do agree that Garland does weave a, a um, impressive enough and a compulsive enough tale for us to kind mm-hmm. of like forgive those things as, as the season progressed. I agree, I agree. I think like with Nick Offerman, I don't think he was going for a villain role per se mm. like he wasn't yeah. trying to be menacing because I don't think his character is menacing because he sort of accepted the fact that he has no free will so he's just very uh, he he doesn't he, you know he's not he doesn't have agency right so yeah. he's just doing things because he ha- it's like Dr. Manhattan right yeah 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 
Yeah, but but what Garland is better at doing than emotional storytelling is that he's a hell of a craftsman. Mm, like yeah. he he's good at like crafting this atmosphere, this pervasive sense of anxiety and escalate, escalating dread. Um, and it's also you know obviously downright gorgeous to look at. You know, it's alternately vibrant and stark, earthy and modernistic. It, it's jam packed with striking imagery that sears right into your brain. You know, like yeah. the the giant little girl Amaya uh, in the forest, you know, mm. looking down on everyone. There's such great imagery, you know, and, and everything about the show feels more poetic and lyrical <laughs> than 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 narrative. Yeah, it has a it has a slightly dreamlike sense of surrealism where you can you know move quite naturally between something that feels very normal and day to day and something that feels hallucinogenic. Uh, likewise, you know, the soundscape, like you mentioned, jarring yeah. and terrifying, and and, and it can also perfect. fill you with yeah, with an almost religious awe when I when I hear the soundtrack. So, mm-hmm. I think although I I like it more than I dislike it. Yeah. Uh, sure. What about you? Uh, I do feel, I mean, like I, for me, like it appeals to the nerd in me just because I I've done research on a lot of the concepts that they kind of like delve into, right? And I mm-hmm. think like it treads a a fine enough line for me to like enjoy the fact that they're referencing these things if you know yeah. what they're talking about like you know it adds that much more right but it's kind of like a in, more insider kind of like understanding of, of the concepts that they're doing but at the same time you don't need to know those things to enjoy what they've been doing I do just feel like yeah I mean I think you're completely right there were just moments of inconsistency right mm. um, that are sandwiched by some really really great beautiful um, as a real uh, dreamscape moments, right? That um, yep. just kind of like let it fall enough for me to be like, oh, okay, uh, unfortunate. That's unfortunate. Um, mm. So yeah, overall, I I did enjoy it. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, how would you rate it? Uh, it's going to be a seven point five for me. Okay. Yeah. 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 I I think same for me. It's also seven point five for me. I think All Toll's Deaths is a rich and complex sci-fi story. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. It's not Garland's best work. No. But. No. It does explore his creative idiosyncrasies to a much greater depth than his previous movies. Uh, so it's very ambitious. I like its novelistic and expensive and avant-garde vibe. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, on the downside, it's, it's sometimes tedious and ponderous and not as rewarding as his films. So a 7.5 or 0.10 from both of us. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I do hope he continues to, to try doing TV. I think he might get uh, better at it as we go yeah, along. But we'll yeah. see. He just yeah. needs to learn to be a bit tighter uh, and uh, how each episode needs to be, you know, episodic. <laughs> there needs to be a beginning, middle, yeah, and exactly. like, don't let it be an eight-hour movie. Uh, is what he did here. Yeah, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, next up, uh, me and Hardy uh, recently watched a show called uh, Dispatches from Elsewhere. Uh, it is, <laughs> weirdly, weirdly enough, uh, man, this is kind of, it feels like another cheat because it's presented as a sci-fi story, but it's really not. It's not. <laughs> but I mean, it is. Yeah. But it kind of is. It is. Yeah. Yeah, because it's it's presented at first as a sci-fi story, uh-huh. and then it kind of veers elsewhere, But okay, before all of that, let, let me like lay the groundwork. Sure. Uh, it's a it's a new story by uh, a new series by Jason Siegel of all people from How I Met Your Mother fame. Uh-huh. Uh, it is very weird and interesting, and one of the most unpredict- unpredictable shows on TV right now. I feel. Um, the very first episode, right? It begins with Richard E. Grant staring wordlessly into the camera for like a solid thirty seconds. That awkwardness was awesome. An uncomfortably long time, yeah. right? And then he, and then suddenly he starts talking to you. Yeah. Uh, 
and that's just kind of and it gets weirder from there and that's kind of the vibe of the show the main plot feels impossible to pin down but but let me try uh grant plays a man named octavio coleman the founder of a mysterious Jejun Institute, mm-hmm. an organization that dabbles in bizarre technological pursuits like building helmets to communicate with dolphins, mm-hmm. uh, VR headsets that can replay human memories, and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. He may also be the mastermind behind an elaborate role-playing game slash social experiment that involves sending participants combing through the city of Philadelphia to find strange clues, interact with odd characters like a breakdancing Bigfoot, for example. Yep. And search for a lost girl named Clara, mm-hmm. or could Octavio actually be the monster that imprisoned Clara and is using her for his own nefarious ends? That's all a mystery. All the while, the players are forced to pick sides between the Dejun Institute or a ragtag group of uh, resistance fighters known as uh, the Elsewhere Society, who are opposing Dejun's uh, capitalist greed. Uh. Mm-hmm. And the protagonists of our show are four random people roped into playing this role-playing game. And they are as lost as we are, but because they are either broken or bored, they find some sort of fulfillment in this quest, right? Yeah. And, and many people might be frustrated because the show's plot is intensely <coughs> confusing. Yeah, it is. And, and and it's not kind of meant to be deciphered, unlike other puzzle box mystery shows. Mm-hmm. The point of the show isn't clues and conspiracies. It's instead it asks ourselves to see us in these protagonists. You know. Um, every episode asks us to see us in one of the main characters and and value the human nature of the stories be- beyond the truth and lies about what's happening around them. So, um, what 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 do you think about this, Hardy? There's so many things to say. Yeah, I right? know. Right? Uh, but okay, to keep it short, I really enjoyed the acting in all of this, from Sally Field yeah. to Andre Three Thousand to the. Mm. Uh, the woman who plays Simone, uh, Eve Lindley, yeah, a transgender yeah, actress, transgender actress, plays, right? Uh, Simone, yeah, yeah, and, and of uh, course Jason Segel. Jason Segel, I mean, who 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 have thunk? No lah, actually, it was not bad. How I met your mother. You know, to be honest, Jason Segel has never played any other character. <laughs> like this, this is his character in every rom com, in yeah, every that's sitcom. That's true. Yeah, this nerdy, out of no, uh, like um, a bit blur, you know. Socially awkward. Socially and... awkward. <laughs> yeah. And um, I like that the first few episodes were focused on a character. Mm. Yeah. So like the first episode of Jason Segel's character, um, Peter, I think. Yeah. Then then Simone, then, Simone, then Sally Field, then Andre Two Thousand. Yeah. Janice. Uh, yeah. yeah. And on Fred Andre Three Thousand. Fred Wynn. With a W. Uh, <laughs> and with a W Y N N. Um, yeah, and how these four really, really different personalities slowly become close, lah. You know, yeah. it's the human relationship that really got me into this series. Uh, mm-hmm. I felt that it was a bit confusing at the beginning, but once you got a hang, of, once you understood what they were trying to do, it kind of like flowed very well. Um, I constantly kept on wondering. To myself, like, because I had no uh, background information on this at all, uh, mm. until you told me about it. Yeah, if if you're watching the show, right, I advise you to like kind of don't don't read, read anything. Up anything about what yeah okay, about what is based on yeah. So after I finished, then when 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 he told me about it, I was like, holy shit, that's so cool. Yeah. But yeah, anyway, uh, again, uh, it is, I I'm I'm quite surprised how much I enjoyed this because I didn't. 
I didn't really like it at first with that weird mm. awkwardness in the beginning and then Jason Segel being a very like being introduced as this like oh I've seen this before you know the guy who who just goes through the motions in life and all that stuff like you know we have yeah. seen that so many times done but yeah. as you progress into that the game and that story and that relationship between the four of them and all that stuff right it becomes so meaty and so satisfying and by mm. the end of it you just You were just like, oh, that was actually a very good series. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I agree. The the labyrinth of weirdness yeah. is a labyrinth, yes. but it it just kind of forms a journey. You mm-hmm. know, it's the real it's the real track you're on. It's actually a character driven story. It is, you know? yeah, and, and it's it's some of the most richly developed characters I, I've seen. And there were multiple moments <laughs> that made me cry with with each of these characters. Yes, yes, you know, yes. like. For example, like uh, Sally Field the, when she Janice when she was you know uh, reliving her wedding. Oh, right? that was good. You know, I think that was what, what the first moment that really like quite hit me. Like, oh man, this show is kind of something Agreed. special. Yeah, yeah. Uh, character work and acting is just excellent. You feel so much for them mm-hmm. that you soon care more about their personal journey than whatever is going on with Jejun or the elsewhere society or, or whatever else lah. Yeah. Um, And and it's it's amazing. Uh, the specials from elsewhere, I think it's unlike anything else on TV right now. Uh, and it has all the highs and lows of that sort of ingenuity, lah. There 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 are moments that defy all conventions, you know. At various points, the story is told via cartoons, 3D animated flip books, yeah. uh, a talking Billy Bass fish, yep. uh, break dancing Bigfoot, uh, cool. and other weird things. So was, many cool things. Awful. So many cool things, yeah. right? And and although we are never really ever quite sure what we are watching yeah. the, the stylish imaginative flourishes are always grounded by really great character work and, yes. and it's something that that other shows of this ilk you know that has a big mystery yep. uh, like narrative structure and inventiveness shows like Westworld and Legion right yeah. they aren't as adept at doing character work as this show is like. mm-hmm. so so I feel like it's a very clever confusing heartfelt and inspiring tale of the human condition yep. spun through the story of four people brought together by something larger than themselves yeah. and, and it's a wonderful journey it is it is it was so worth it yeah man it was so worth it um, just, just to keep in mind we have not seen the finale the finale is it's tomorrow, tomorrow but yeah. I mean, yeah but we've seen uh, <laughs> nine, nine out nine of the ten episodes yeah. so, so I think it's more than enough to judge it yeah. so um Any any like concluding thoughts before you give your rating, Hadi? Uh, I can't wait to see the season finale. Uh, yeah. I mean, after what happened in the previous episode, won't spoil it. But goddamn, son. Yeah, man, <laughs> it, it it takes me to some really unexpected yeah. places. Yeah, so I cannot wait how they're gonna finish this off. Correct. Yeah, I yeah. think it's called and, Top and Boy or something. The last episode. Oh really? Or Toy something. I can't remember lah. Uh, top Top Boy like the Drake show. I don't know. <laughs> 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 well, if you don't know, Drake actually has a show uh, in Britain called Top, Top Boy. Boy. Yeah. Uh, it's, yeah, it's about you know like black people and it's East End lah. It's one of those gritty. Sorry, sorry. Country. What was not Top Boy? The Boy. Jao man, so far. Sorry, it's called The Boy. My bad. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I, I'm psyched for it as yeah, well. But I think based on based on what I've seen, like I'm actually giving this a nine out of ten. Oh, uh, very high yeah, rating. easily nine out of ten. Yeah. Interesting. Damn. Yeah. Who would have thought that we would have rated this higher than Plot Against America? <laughs> different. It's so different, though. 
Yeah. It's so different, uh, yeah. But I think it because it's a nice relief yeah. from the the horribleness going on in the world, you know. Yeah. Like plot, plot in America is great as a cautionary tale, yeah. but sometimes I need like a distraction from something life affirming, and I think like that, especially something also is life affirming. Yep. And whereas plot against America is is soul crushing. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I I I responded to to the brightness of that lah. Yeah, same. Me yeah. Too. Okay. Yeah. Uh, next up, we'll be diving into. Hold on. What was your score again? Nine. Yeah, right? same as yours. Okay. Nice. Okay. Uh, next up, we'll be diving into a little segment we like to call quick hits, where I talk about some of the TV shows and movies I've seen recently, briefly, uh, that my co-hosts haven't seen. But I think on this particular occasion, uh, you guys have seen some of the shows, mm-hmm. right? Uh, what are what are the shows that you guys have seen on on this particular list that uh, maybe we can both discuss at the same time? Uh? Um, Midnight Gospel. Mm-hmm. You see Midnight Gospel. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, what about you? Oh, and Mortal Kombat. Uh, Legend. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, Isa. Um, I can hop in for Beastars. Okay. Uh, I can hop in for. Yeah, I can hop in for Beastars and Midnight Gospel. Nice. Beastars. Have you seen yeah. Tales from the Loop? By the way. Uh no, I haven't started on it yet. Yeah. Ah okay. Uh, in that case, let's let's uh, start off with the Midnight Gospel. Uh, it comes to you from Adventure Time creator Pendleton Ward and and Duncan Trussell of the Duncan Duncan Trussell Family Hour podcast. It is this super trippy new animated series <laughs> that uh, follows a quote unquote space caster, which is a space podcaster. As he traverses the multiverse, interviewing a gamut of uh, multi-dimensional beings, uh, ranging from tiny clown creatures to to a severed head making out for woman and and weird other things for his podcast lah. And, and much like Adventure Time, this series is silly and profound in equal measures. The big difference is that Midnight Gospel sheds the pretense of a children's show right away. You you can tell mm-hmm. by the cursing yeah. and the gore and the blood. Uh, that that this is an adult show, yep. and you can tell right off the gate, like, and it's mind blowing in 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 many ways. Um, Ward and Trussell have joined forces, basically, right, to animate select conversations from Trussell's soul searching and occasionally boisterous podcast. Yeah. Uh, so all the dialogue here is taken from Trussell's podcast. Like these are real conversations he had with people. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, these are real conversations he had about. Uh, usually he talks about f- the different life philosophies. He talks about magic. Yep. He talks about meditation. Yeah. He talks about metaphysics, and, and at the same time, the pair have designed this beguiling fictional backdrop <laughs> with, with with Trussell voicing a a, a pink skinned creature named Clancy. Who inhabits an eye-popping intergalactic backdrop and owns a universe simulator, which is kind of an advanced virtual reality machine that allows him to travel to imaginary worlds and interact with various intelligent life forms. Uh, and if you if that sounds trippy, just you wait. You know the the midnight gospel relishes the opportunity to to catch you off guard with his with his surrealness. Uh. Um, what 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 do you think about uh, the midnight gospel? Uh, I enjoyed it. Um, Duncan yeah. Trussell, I've been a fan of his because he's been on Joe Rogan's podcast a few times, and I love whenever he's on. They go into this weird DMT infused like conversations and all that stuff. So oh, yeah. this felt like uh, it really felt like an extension of Duncan uh, Trussell podcast. Yeah. yeah, and he just is how his brain just works, lah. Uh, I love the character Clancy. <laughs> Clancy's the best. Yeah, Clancy's <laughs> amazing. Yeah, and uh. This is the Adventure Time guys, right? Pendleton Ward, you know. Pendleton Ward, he created Adventure Time. Yeah. Right? So you could tell the the some of the influences and all that lah. 
uh, just by yeah. the styling the stylisticness of this uh thing but wow what what an interesting show yeah mm-hmm. if that makes yeah. sense it's really interesting and i loved it <laughs> it's fascinating, <laughs> it's fascinating uh, yeah what about you Isa? Uh, I, I okay when I first heard what they were trying to do with the Midnight Gospel I was like okay you know like Trussell I've heard some of his stuff here and there it's a bit on the edge but to, for them to pair up the visuals mm. with the content in that particular manner works so much better than I thought it would right mm-hmm. they kind of took me by surprise I, I wholly enjoyed uh, the Midnight Gospel it was just one of those things that um, I, I think it, it's bizarre and absurd and and uh, incredibly enjoyable at the same time and, and just a joy to watch uh, in a time like this if you know what I mean right when yeah, we're having more yeah. time to just kind of like, like we end up having a lot of this time where we're just digging into our own kind of psyche and all of that and and, and knowing that this is a product of, of Trussell digging into his own psyche right as sort of like a uh, interdimensional kind of space adventure as, and as he speaks mm-hmm. to all these other characters is uh, is Oh, I mean, I I really really enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, like in a sense, isn't our isn't the internet just a universe simulator? And and aren't we also doing podcasts because we are bored at home? You know, it's essentially what Clancy is doing. Yeah. Uh, I I I love the casual rhythms of the organic conversation mm. and just the way it stands in stark contrast to the outrageousness that's happening on screen. You know. Yeah. As uh, you know, there is. This amiable, inviting quality to these interviews that make them engaging. Yeah. Uh, and every episode approaches very sophisticated ideas while stuffing them into this astonishing psychedelic cartoon so that uh, Midnight Gospel force, forces you to visualize the, the conversations and its substance. Uh, the result is this trippy sci-fi adventure that's just a feast for your eyes and, 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 and your mind, yeah. you know. Uh, it's actually pretty good because I think at first it starts kind of silly. Yeah. Uh, talking about magic and metaphysics, but I think its final episode where Trussell interviews his late mother uh, was very emotional mm. and, and really delved, delved into kind of, there's this kind of mini character arc for, for Clancy as well that, yeah. that the episode with his mother really like wrapped home. So that, that in a sense, it is a podcast like, come to life, yeah. but in a sense, there's also a real narrative based around this, this dopey anti-hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man. Um, you guys have any uh, final thoughts about oh, it? I, I suggest you watch it, man. <laughs> yeah, I, please, I, please. honestly, for quick hits, I'm gonna highly recommend. This. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it an eight out of ten. I completely enjoyed this. Yeah, about eight. Yeah. Same. I'm I'm giving an eight as well. Uh, outside of Trussell's interview with his uh, late mother, which oh is very damn, that was so good. You didn't like in that? the finale, right? Yeah. yeah. No, no, I, I loved it. I loved oh, it. Like okay. I, I. I I also want to in- recommend another episode. Uh, oh. It's an interview of uh, Dr. Drew Pinsky, who's mm. kind of cast as the president of a world overrun by zombies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he's mm. kind of like, you know, cocking a shotgun while talking about the parameters of legalizing weed. You know, uh, it's <laughs> yeah. an amazing conversation. There's also na- the novelist uh, Anne-, Anne Lamott, who is a carna- carnivorous hippo, I think, uh, recalling yeah. her path to sobriety. Yep. Uh, yeah. as they enter this meat mush at a slaughterhouse run by killer clowns. <laughs> uh, I think my favorite of all, though, is this guy called Damien Eccles. He was a death row survivor. He was one of the West Memphis Three from the Paradise Lost documentary series. He stars as a fish creature who talks through his preference for magic over traditional Buddhist meditation mm-hmm. and explains 
why he feels grateful for his years behind bars. Uh, so, I mean, this is a podcast for people who don't listen to podcasts. And, and yeah, I would yeah. highly recommend it as well. It, it's kind of stream of, stream of consciousness random. But I think it's structured enough to, to make it worthwhile. So, um, mm-hmm. I, I like this a lot, man. Uh, 8 out of 10 for me as well. Yeah. Yeah, man. Oh, by the way, do you have like Ooh. any favorite favorite stories that any of the interviewers told? I love the mother one. That's my favorite. That's definitely, mm, definitely. my top as yeah. well. Um, yeah, man. Because it's a dead okay. mother. So, yeah, the Dr. Yeah, Bishop one right. is also a highlight for me. Yeah, that was really, really like just the, the visual imagery alone and them talking mm-hmm. about legalizing weed was, was incredibly funny. Mm-hmm. Outside of those two... So, I, I actually... Know, l- I'm going to need more time to kind of like <laughs> think about standard yeah. moments. The, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm a casual enough reader of all the philosophies and stuff to kind of understand what you're talking about. But I learned something completely new from this, bos- from this podcast, uh, uh-huh. from the Midnight Gospel. Uh, from an interviewer, uh, she's a mortician named uh, Caitlin Doughty, who... Uh, delivers this engrossing history lesson about the evolution of the deaf industrial complex. You know, its impact about turning mortality into a taboo, uh, why people started embalming people, how uh, how undertakers started becoming an industry, you know. Uh, and I, I, I never knew about the history and, and that was fascinating. Which episode is that? Uh, the one where, you know, he he's co- has a conversation with deaf. Yeah. Oh, mm. right, right. Okay. And then she explains in the deaf industrial complex you know, how embalming started during the civil war to bring uh, the corpses of the men home. And then they started convincing you that everybody needs to be embalmed. You know, and then they started making money from it. Fascinating conversation, man. Uh, love, yeah. love watching the show. And do and you realize that it was released on 420? Which for very obvious <laughs> reasons. Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, okay. Next. Next up, uh, what else have you guys seen uh, that you mentioned? Uh, oh, uh, Mortal Kombat. Do you, do you want to get into Mortal Kombat? Yeah, first? Mortal Kombat. Damn, son. Uh, Mortal Kombat Legends, uh, Scorpion's Revenge, uh, offers a new perspective on the familiar Mortal Kombat story by making Scorpion's arc the spine of the narrative. Yeah. Uh, what do you think about this? Oh, um, can I just say, faithful adaptation. <laughs> And just from a different point of view, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it was fun for what it was. It is a Mortal Kombat movie, lah. You know, um, not nothing that is like the live action one at all, obviously. Um, yep. Really good um, graphic action that is expected out of uh, a Mortal Kombat uh, IP, lah. You know. Yep. Um, it could be a tad too much at times. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like at times I just mm-hmm. felt, oh god, enough. Okay, I get it. But um, for what it is, it is a serviceable, enjoyable Mortal Kombat um, outing lah for me. Yeah. Uh, how would you rate this, uh, Hadi? I I I'll give it like a six and a half lah. All yeah. right. Okay. I mean, um, it's not. I, I wouldn't highly recommend it. Yeah. I didn't quite enjoy this. Like, I think the film starts strong by kind yeah. of showcasing the tragedy that made Scorpion, you know, Scorpion. such a badass that we all know mm-hmm. and love. You mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. But then it, it kind of becomes encumbered by franchise fan service, you know? Yes. Like, what a, it's, it's a bit of a waste because if they actually slowed things down and, and dug into who is Scorpion, 
what makes him tick you know like like how how did he learn to control his powers how does he feel yep. about losing his humanity uh this film isn't yep. interested in going any anything but skin deep with his protagonist so we never quite find out so i don't yeah, understand the I'm point of right this now. framing device thank you thanks Uh, so yeah, I guess it delivers when it comes to the basic staples, the gory martial yeah, arts action, the, gory martial arts. the yeah, self yeah. self deprecating sense of humor, but it doesn't offer much else. So I'm giving this nope. a four point five. Mm, I'm yeah, giving it so, a six point five because I enjoyed the goriness, lah. But <laughs> okay, but really, after a while, right? Even I was like, oh man, again, really. That was a bit too much yeah. at times. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yep. Nah, yeah. whatever. Uh. Next, uh, we're going to be talking about uh, an anime that I uh, debuted on Netflix. It's called Beast Stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a sensation online on Tumblr specifically. A lot of furries are into this anime apparently. Uh, Beast Stars no is an <laughs> no Beast Stars is an adaptation of a manga. Uh, yeah. Of the same name, uh, created by a guy called Paru Itagaki, uh, it is set in a civilized anthropomorphic society where herbivores, carnivores, and omnivores coexist without getting eaten or eating each other. It's kind of like Zootopia, except hornier and much more violent, and and kind of goes beyond Zootopia, Zootopia's prejudice allegory to deal with. I mean, slightly more complex themes of identity, sexual identity, and, and society. Uh, the show takes place at a boarding school called Sheraton Academy. Uh, it focuses on one subset of students in particular, the drama club. Uh, though these handful of drama kids, uh, through this handful of drama clips, uh, we get a, a close up of uh, each student's thoughts and frustrations about speciesism, uh, predator versus prey complexes, and sexism. Uh, things kick off in the first episode when a carnivorous student eats an alpaca at the school. Uh, and then tensions rise between the carnivores and the herbivores, and and later we see the 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 latter see you know the carnivores as as monsters, while while the while the carnivores are tired of the prejudice against them. Uh, what what do you think about this, uh, Isa? Uh, okay, like like the conversation that we had pr- prior to that, there's a slew of kind of like furry anime out right now. Uh, mm-hmm. I didn't finish Beastars, not all the way. So I went got through maybe like eight episodes or so. I do think uh, the premise isn't new, right? Like it's it's something that I think. Uh, uh, Welcome to Seton Academy was running kind of like a parallel premise at the same time. High school uh, anthropomorphic animals and so on, but we have humans in those, uh, so mm. it changes the and plot course, slightly Zootopia differently. La. And yeah. of course, yeah, Zootopia, which is not set in a high school and sends the high school drama and all of that. Uh yeah, I think I understand why Beastars is kind of like a, a, a such a sensation, right? Uh, outside of the furry thing as well, um, the anthropomorphic animals give enough kind of like objective leeway for most people to kind of examine some very uncomfortable topics for young mm. people, right? Uh, yep. especially like with violence and sexuality and all of that gets to play out in an extremely zany way. Right, mm. uh, and I think a lot of the time when things are strange and then things are a bit like absurd, that that's when Beastars kind of like gets into its own rhythm. It's the moments in time when things get a bit more serious that I feel like it falls a bit short for me. Uh, mm. Yeah, but I mean, out of the half a season that I I did catch, I enjoyed most of it. I just felt like there was a lot of melodramatic moments that annoyed me. I think in particular between, especially with the love interest with. Uh, Um, the Legosi and, the and Haru, and, yeah, and Haru, yeah. There were just moments in time where I was just like, I, I had my eyes kind of rolling in the back of my head. 
and for that reason, given the whole slew of anime that I have to watch, I decided to yeah. drop it. This was before it got on Netflix. Yeah. Ah, uh, so, I see. Okay, okay. Yeah, so I, I before it debuted on Netflix, I was watching that as part of the slew of stuff that I needed to cover for the season. Uh, and it made it past the first three episode mark that I usually give, you know. But right. like, I think there were quite a number of things that I had to keep track of, and Beastars kind of just mm. fell by the wayside. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. Uh, I I I see how that how you came to that conclusion uh, because like I like Beastars a lot, but if I had so much to watch, also this wouldn't be a top priority at all for me. Mm, uh, yeah. I did I did kind of enjoy the perverseness of the Lagosi and Haru relationship. You know, he doesn't know whether yeah. he wants to eat her. He doesn't know whether he wants to fuck her. Like that is yeah. a weird dynamic, man. And, it, and he's is, yeah. not the only character with like issues of identity in in relationships to other species. You know, like I think being predator operate is a source of many characters' deep insecurities. Like mm-hmm. Louis, who is the red deer, who is the seemingly untouchable <laughs> president of the drama club, refuses to show any weakness and, and clashes with Lagosi over the wolf's willingness to you know avoid conflict and and stay timid. You know, the the, yep. the deer views it as a personal insult that somebody like a wolf would want to be weak. Um, yep. And Haru takes issue with all with also being considered cute and weak, and and she yeah. she overcomes that um, differently. Like she uses her her sexuality mm-hmm. as as a coping mechanism. Uh, she considers yeah. like slut slut shaming and ostracization as a lesser evil compared to uh, you know being weak. La. So I think the the real yeah. charm of these stars lies in the time that it devotes to each of the characters different uh, relationships with each other and with, within themselves. Um, yeah. The members of the cast are young and complex and, and it, it, it navigates this path of divining, defining themselves through interesting ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. there's, and I feel like none of the, none of the kids are tropes either. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I, I, I liked it for that, in, in that respect. And yeah. I also like some of the visual gags it has, you know, like sex and sexual identity is such a big part of this show. Yeah. Uh, in, it's different. I've never it quite does have seen some it. some really good visual gags. I have to give them that. You know, like there, there's this, do you ever get to the episode where, where this uh, chicken enjoys laying eggs and then watching people eat her eggs? <laughs> Yeah. It's it's uh, a scene. It, yeah, it's so, a it's a metaphor that broke my brain. <laughs> like I knew what it meant, but my brain just refused to process it. <laughs> um. Yeah. It's okay. So I and a lot of the visual gags are pretty unique, but like for that particular gag, for me, it wasn't as big of a deal because there's another anime series that's even more sexual than Beastars called Isho- mm. uh, Ishoku Reviewers, Interspecies Reviewers, right? And they have an entire episode dedicated to eating eggs as a fetish. Uh, oh, wow. so, in comparison, like the gag pales a great, great deal. Um, interspecies reviewers is like kind of next level edgy stuff. So, which is why I've never covered it, but it's hilariously funny. Okay, uh, yeah. Um, I, yeah. I, I think like one final point I just wanted to bring up is like I think yeah. I'm not a big fan of CGI animation, but I thought yeah. the CGI animation here was relatively decent, and I like the the hybrid style. It combines stylistic yeah. 2D animation, uh, for flashbacks and dreams. Uh, with CG animation, uh, so I like the hybrid style of it. Uh, I, I thought it was cool. Yeah, in general, I'm usually not a big fan as well, but I think it was very tasteful um, this time around. Uh, and I don't know if it's because uh, because they're anthropomorphic animals and we are leaning towards like the whole Zootopia kind of feel to it. That's why mm-hmm. we can 
you know, like it's a lot more appealing than it usually is when they do human kind, uh, human stuff. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, I I didn't mind it at all. I thought it was pretty tasteful. Uh, how would you rate this? And any concluding thoughts? Uh, well, given that I only, uh, again, I only made it through kind of half the season. I it's a decent anime. I'm going to give it like a six point five for me. Mm, okay. Yeah. Um. I I liked it for the most part. Um. I think I agree with some uh, with most of Isa's complaints about it. Uh, I enjoyed the nature versus nurture aspect of it. The instinct versus rational thought push and pull conflict uh, internally is is fascinating. But there are some like lame parts to the show as well. Uh. Mm. Uh, but on on a plus side, I I thought like the theme song was like a complete banger. Yeah, it's a, it's 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 a great theme song. One of my favorite opening theme songs I think in anime of all time. Like uh, I think it's my favorite since Samurai Champloo was around. Yeah, that that is high praise, my friend. Yeah, uh, it's a six point five out of ten for me as well. Yeah, cool. Next, uh, nice. Uh, what's up next? Uh, hold on, let me scroll down. Uh, I'm gonna be t- be talking about Tales from the Loop. Um, it is a new anthology series on Amazon Prime. Uh, strangely and uniquely, it's based on sci-fi paintings. Yeah. Not 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 a book, not a comic. It's based on paintings by a Swedish artist, Simon. Oh God, I don't know how to pronounce this. Uh, Stalin Hag. Simon Stalinhag, uh, whose art uh, kind of fills country landscapes inspired by the Swedish countryside with with retro futuristic technology, uh, discarded machinery, and brutalist architecture. Mm-hmm. And and it kind of has a gift for keying into the this show has a gift for keying into the eerie beauty of of those visuals and finding stories that match their disquieting melancholy. Uh, the paintings. Uh, are set with uh, strange images of soulful robots, uh, floating rocks, and and snow that falls up from the ground. But like the stories of the show are so profoundly human. Mm-hmm. Uh, it takes place in a small town called Mercer, Ohio. So it, it's not in Sweden lah. It's in America, but in in a similar landscape lah. Mercer, Ohio is a, is a snow capped uh, small town as well. Yeah. In some um, hazy, indeterminate version of what appears to be the 1980s. Uh, Mercer is the home to the Mercer Center for Experimental Physics. It's colloquially known as the Loop. The the Loop has a founder named uh, Russ Willard, uh, a history and a center, uh, and it's built around a mysterious black orb called the Eclipse, described mm-hmm. as the beating heart of the Loop. Uh, it's a machine that can seemingly make the impossible possible. But beyond that, the details are fuzzy. The show is never concerned with any loop mythology or loop law. Hmm. What is the loop? Where did the loop come from? How does the loop work? None of that is explored. None of it matters next to how the loop impacts the lucky or unlucky people who live near it. Mm-hmm. There, are no, there are no world-ending apocalypses. There are no conniving villains after the loop's power. Uh, or even the, the loop doesn't even act like some sort of god. Tales from the Loop is simply about everyday people. And that's the beauty of it, I think. And I think it might frustrate some people who are sci-fi fans. Mm-hmm. But what the loop is and what it does really isn't to the point of a series at all. The point is to use this unsettlingly, this unsettlingly beautiful alternate universe and trippy sci-fi concepts as a way to explore emotional truths of different people. Interesting. Uh, the show doesn't really have a star, but if it does, it is Rebecca Hall, who plays a mother of a strange past. Uh, but after we learn her story in the first episode, so Rebecca Hall's story is the first episode, right? Mm-hmm. Her prominence ebbs and flows as background characters take central focus in their own episodes. So for example, a random neighborhood kid in episode one suddenly becomes the protagonist in episode four. 
Uh, and then when we see a security guard randomly, like, you know, a background character in episode three, he becomes the star of episode six. So it's connected tangentially, but yep. each episode is standalone, and, uh, totally standalone. It, it kind of forms this mosaic where each episode coalesces together to form a hopeful, but, you know, this disquieting portrait of humanity. It's, it's in its own ineffable way, the relationship between the people and the loop is profoundly reassuring. Uh, Tales is not a happy show. You know, our characters suffer tremendous loss and the stories explore things like aging, yearning, parenthood and grief in, in painful ways. But there is a comforting affirmation in the universality of these stories in that whatever it is we want, whatever it is we need, whatever it is we desire, we are not alone in seeking it. Mm-hmm. And, and there's a certain lived-in quality to the show that makes it riveting also. There's a, there's a bipolar ro- bipedal robot here, harboring structures there. But these residents know and are too familiar with the anomalies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just so, it's not unusual at all. Like They treat it like we treat our smartphones. You know? It's just a thing that's there. And, and the origins and the purpose are never explained by the characters. Nonchalance towards these things makes the world of the loop feel more real. Um, it is ultimately less interested in how its strange universe works than what it's like to live within it yep. and the ways that that universe can reflect our own lives back to us and beyond nerdy things like law and action explanations. Mm-hmm. I think like that's what sci-fi and art is supposed to evoke, these emotional react- reflections of ourselves. Uh, now, on the negative side, I can see how many people may not like the show. It's, it's slow, um, nothing is explained. Yeah. Uh, the episode quality can be inconsistent at sometimes, but that's, you know, you got to accept that with all anthologies, I guess. Yeah. But I mostly, I mostly enjoyed kind of these beautiful tone poems. Uh, mm. So I think o- overall, like, I really enjoyed the show. Um, not super high on it, but not super low on it either. It's a 7 out of 10 for me. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Uh, you were saying like one of our friends, uh, Ellie, really loves this show, right? Yeah, did she, Ellie did she tell loves this show. I mean, like she didn't really go into much detail, but she was saying she wasn't sure. Okay. It's it. I, I was. She, you remember the conversation we had with her? How she loved the OA, and we didn't quite like the OA. Yep. Yeah. So I was just kind of worried if uh, it was going to be one of those other things because I really didn't like the OA, uh, but she mm. loves it. You know. Uh. So I was curious to see like what your take on it was be, and uh, like what her take on it was going to be, and then like kind of see if I could find a middle ground when I eventually do get to it. I mean, I have it. I just haven't watched it yet. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's been pretty interesting. She didn't go into much detail, but I do feel that a lot of it has to do with uh, the fact that it's based on the paintings, right? And as, uh, as an yeah. artist herself, she can see how, you know, um, each, each and every episode kind of like draws from that, that uh, a very different, um, a very different kind of anthology medium, right? for mm. them to draw inspiration from. So I'm going to hazard a guess and say that's what it is, uh, but I haven't really spoken to her about it in much depth. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, like, it, it, in the end, like, I like the show as well. Like, I like I like beautiful human stories. Like, mm-hmm. But, like, I think as a sci-fi show, it falls uh, a bit short because some of the concepts are a bit derivative. Mm. Right. But the, the acting and storytelling is, is very well done. Cool. I will check it out nonetheless. Yes. Yeah. Uh, next up, um, I'm talking about the fifth and final season of The Magicians uh, because it was suddenly cancelled by Sci-Fi a few weeks ago. Uh, it kind of makes me a bit sad. What happened there? Uh, low ratings, man. Uh, they're, they're averaging like 500,000 viewers a week, so that's, that's not great. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, The Magi- Magicians has long been one of my favourite shows on television, uh, even more so when it started leaving the books behind and began carving out its own path. Uh, the show to me was always like endlessly creative and loads of fun, coming up with wild concepts that that 
and turns that were always left field, but it never sacrificed you know, emotional arcs and the troubling realities of his characters. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of all the ways it diverges from the books, uh, none was more shocking than the season 4 finale, which uh, the last season finale, it killed off the book's main protagonist, Quinton Coldwater. Oh no. Uh, and if you understand the rules of magic in this universe, uh, Quinton's death is permanent. There's like no magical takebacks here. The showrunners have been very clear about that. This is a permanent death. Uh, and, and this is wild because Quentin Coldwater do this, right? This is like Harry Potter killing Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he, he, is, he is the Harry Potter of the show. And it's just wild that they will kill him off. And, but that's one of those things that I really love about the show. Like, it, it really takes a lot of big swings every season. Interesting. Okay. Uh, but weirdly, I was also worried because it's like, you know, how would the show function without Quentin? But you know, like, I should have known better. Uh, time, and, time and time again, Magicians paints itself into a corner, flirts with jumping the shark, and then takes a sharp left turn into holy shit territory. Um, all the while, kind of, com- kind of keeping like, its foot firmly planted on the emotional reality of the characters. And impossibly, but not without a bit of clunkiness, Season 5 nicely recovers from Quinton's exit. Mm-hmm. Uh, the show has always been about the brutal realities of adulthood, the depression, the grief, the frustration. Uh, and Season 5 leans heavily into its uh, long-running themes uh, by leaning into its rich ensemble. Uh, all the characters deal with Quinton's death in various ways, but possibly the best decision the writers could have made is that the story moves on from Quinton. There are new quests, new mysteries, and new baddies, and, and we quickly understand that the hero we lost was never the only hero of the story because this, this show has a rich, mm-hmm. big ensemble. Um, the backbone of Season 5 appears to be twofold. Uh, firstly, Magic is back on Earth, thanks to what our characters did in Season 4. Uh, you know, Magic was taken away by gods, they brought Magic back. Uh, but our crew, uh, you know, they su- basically they su- surpassed or bypassed the authority of gods to bring Magic back to Earth. Uh, unfortunately, they've unwittingly poured an ocean of Magic into this oh, world. No. Uh, previously, magicians had to make do with you know, a bit of Magic here and there, drips and draps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now Magic is so ample the gang have opened the floodgates that uh, the search in magic is causing every tiny little spell to be amplified exponentially, you know, leading to like massive deaths and, and cat- catastrophes, you know, like giant world ending things happen every week because of some little spell. That's how, that is how much magic there is in the world. Uh, and, and meanwhile, in Fillory, which is in this other magical land, uh, somehow has jumped 300 years into the future mm-hmm. and is now ruled by an evil overlord known as the Dark King. Uh, so now the magicians have two worlds to save. Uh, there's also a third subplot about a literal theft of an entire library for rare magical books. Uh, it leads to some great detective stuff and it, it intersects with the other two storylines nicely. And, and overall, I really liked season five, but there is kind of a sense that the show is on its last legs. Mm-hmm. Um, like while the show is still fun and witty, it, I feel like it's no longer as inventive or unpredictable in this season. Right. The writing for some of the episodes appeared to be going through the motions. Um, even its famous annual musical episode felt a bit unimaginative. And, and all in all, while I'm sad that the show is over, I'm glad that it's able to go out while it still has some steam. You know? mm. Okay. Like rather than overstay its welcome, like it's gone while it's still enjoyable, and it feels like season six may have worn out its welcome because I was getting a bit like, meh. Uh, like this show isn't as great as it used to be. It's still good, but it's not as great. And I like that they kind of left on a high. Sadly, though, the show ends on a cliffhanger because oh, they didn't man. know they were going to be cancelled. Oh, no. So it's an extremely unsatisfying ending. Mm. Uh, but all, all in all, it's it's solid. So I'll, I'll give it a 6.5 out of 10. Okay. Fair. Yeah. Uh, but, but 
that is like a huge jump down from like I usually rate the show eight nine yeah. eight nine. So six is a big jump down lah. And primarily because I'm dissatisfied with the ending lah, but it's mm-hmm. not really the show's fault lah, I guess. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about a show called Brockmire. Uh, man, I love cheating on the show because <laughs> Brockmire is not a genre. <laughs> yeah, show. but what happened in Brockmire has caused it to be a, sci- a genre show. Yeah, really? It's yeah. Brock Meyer is uh, also in his last yep. season. Uh, not can not cancelled. It's, it's done. It's ending on yeah. its it's ending on its own free mm-hmm. will. It's uh, it's created by and starring a uh, Hank Azaria. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brock Meyer, if you don't know, it started out as a low key comedy about a disgraced baseball announcer. Yeah. Its first three seasons were very grounded, but extremely hilarious dramedies, kind of tracking the slow descent and heart and redemption of a selfish, self destructive, self substance adult self hating. Self-hating, yeah. It's, it's a bit of a Bojack Horseman. In a way, yeah. But this fourth and concluding season throws a huge curveball in its final inning by jumping to the year 2030. Uh, the world is now... Yeah, it's 2030. Not so, not so far away, but, you know, far enough. The world is on the verge of apocalypse thanks to climate change, riots, wars, plagues, and food shortages. Yeah. So, nothing quite different. Uh, but... Brock Meyer himself is actually doing pretty well. As, as we saw in season 3, he's overcome his addictions, he's made great strides to become a better human being to himself, uh, and he has the full support of his friends. Uh, and season 4 sees him as a fairly responsible human being and doing very well. Uh, and, but he ad- unexpectedly finds himself as a father to a Filipino girl. Uh, this is kind of a callback to season 1, because in season 1 he told the story about how he went to Manila, he did. Uh, he went to Manila for three years, did a bunch of heroin, and doesn't remember a thing. So apparently, he had a daughter who is now fully mm-hmm. grown, uh, who comes to visit him in America after his mom di- after her mom dies. So now he has a daughter. He also finds himself as a new commissioner of baseball, tasked with reviving a dead sport. Uh, baseball attendance is already low now, but attendance in twenty thirty is terrible, mostly because and get this, it's because. The weather is so uncomfortable due to climate change that people don't want to sit outside for five hours anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and one of the one of the best things that I've seen the show do is that most of the top baseball stars are abandoning the sport for cricket. <laughs> like they're going to India to play professional cricket, which is apparently super lucrative today. Or in 2013, I guess. It's it's a radical swing, but it, it's still a home run because it has like all these filthily hilarious jokes, sneaky poignance, and, and hang a serious, acerbic wits is all there. Um, and what I really loved about Brock Meyer is that Brock Meyer has always used baseball as a metaphor for the human yeah. condition. Like the, the romanticism of America's favorite pastime, representing people who cling to old ways, unwilling to change, like Brock Meyer was in the first three seasons. Though. And this final season uses it as a metaphor for social commentary. Uh, on, on paper, that amount of context and setup, plus you know you have to have the character continuity from previous seasons, sounds like it would threaten to overwhelm Brock Meyer. And honestly, sometimes it does teeter on being too busy, especially for an eight-episode season. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's gone to from character study to sci-fi allegory yeah. now. Yet, the show keeps the ship steady by committing to the theme of, of dragging... Uh, obsolete or obstinate institutions into the future. That's what Brock Meyer is trying to do with baseball. You know? He's trying to drag it into the future, kicking and screaming. Mm-hmm. Uh, Brock Meyer knows that baseball must evolve in order to survive, which not only means changing the mechanics of the game, 
but also the entire apparatus around around it. Like there's a you know the the owners of the sport, right? A group of amoral billionaire team owners running the game, the distress the distrustful players union, both of whom are deeply disinterested in reform. You know, and it's a potent analogy for the uphill battle of progress in society. All meaningful change demands a systemic reframing of the world, and and it's an inherently frightening notion to anyone comfortable with the status quo. But the status quo has gotten us into some deep shit, whether it's in terms of climate change or in terms of the politics that we live in, lah. So through this lens, through this lens of baseball, once again, you know, uh, and through the lens of a backdrop of an apocalyptic America, uh, so it's brought my is able to like really. Delve deep into all these issues while still be, being a comedy, you know. It's a. It isn't merely an avenue for dark humor at the expense of our current culture. It's a. It's a harbinger of things to come if we refuse to adapt. Uh, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, mm. And through seasons one to three, Brock Meyer learned the way that he had to. He learned the hard way, lah. That he had to change to be better, mm. right? And now he's teaching us and baseball how to do the same. The final season also finds creative ways to reunite Brock Meyer with like characters from all three previous seasons. It uses them effectively to to render this near future sci-fi landscape, which with richly drawn emotions from the past. It maps everyone's growth, relationships, and character arcs very well. And most importantly, the show is goddamn funny, man. Brock Meyer is hilarious. Um, even if he didn't try to do this dystopian aesthetic thing, it would still be one of the funniest shows on TV. On a line by line, scene basis, pound for pound, it's one-liners move at fastball speed, man. And the show has a sharpened political conscience now that's only made them land harder. So it's such an unexpectedly genre way to end what has easily been one of the one of the best TV shows of the peak TV era. So I'm giving this a nine point five out of ten. Damn, Super high nice. Rated. Yep. Uh, if you guys have not seen Brock Meyer, please, please go watch Brock Meyer. It's not genre, I know, for the first three seasons, but the fourth season is. But you should watch it anyway. Yeah. One of the best dramedies out there. Uh, I'm gonna quickly run through the last few ones. Uh, next up is the Letter for the King. It is a new medieval fantasy series from Netflix about a teenage squire and his friends who travel across several kingdoms to deliver a secret letter to the king. This fantasy series is based on a Dutch novel, and I seriously can't imagine. That the book could be any more forgettable or generic than the show. Uh, the letter for the king may have made a, a an okay ninety minute movie, but it gets stretched pretty thin across six episodes. It's very dull and lifeless, and it's aimed at adolescent viewers. But regardless of age, whether you're five or whether you're fifty. You'll be a one hundred percent bought by this. This is a one out of ten. Do not watch this. Uh, next up, I'll be talking about a show with a very interesting premise: uh, Motherland, Fort mm. Salem. Uh, Motherland introduces a world in which witches were not persecuted. were not persecuted in the Salem witch trials. Instead, they became the backbone of the American military, creating a matriarchal society where women are in power. Uh, the show specifically focuses on focuses on three young women undergoing basic training in combat magic and follows them into their early deployment when a crisis emerges. It's an interesting premise, uh, but unfortunately, it's very very bad. Uh, the writing feels like a divergent knockoff, <laughs> which itself is a knockoff of other teen dystopias like Hunger Games, you know, and all that. Yeah. Uh, the the tone is uneven. Unsure whether to be a super serious, super dark Homeland type show. You know, it, it kind of wants to be Homeland sometimes, yeah. and then sometimes it wants to be Sabrina. Ayo. <laughs> so that <laughs> the conflict there. So the, I know it's so weird. It's like they can be like there's a magical terrorist and it's like twenty four. It's like Homeland, like Carrie Matheson kind of shit. And then the the next scene there's like an orgy in a Wait, high what? school. It's 
It's bizarre. It's bizarre. The tones do not mesh at all. The mythology is confusing. The reveals are hard to follow, and the dialogue is so bad. And at its best, the series is wildly ambitious, and, and it can be gorgeous. You know, there's like flying drug trips and and strength and enhancing orgies. Apparently, orgies is something that you know, witches do to get power. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's it, this this marriage between between like military and goth motifs and high school drama is. So not congruent. Uh. It's a four out of ten. <laughs> but such an interesting premise, though. Yeah. It's fascinating. Yeah. It's fascinating. Like, like if you told me this is like Homeland meets Sabrina about uh, uh America that is run by witches and their military is based on combat magic, I was like, ah, oh, that's sounds interesting. Yeah. Like it doesn't quite work, lah. Uh. I did, did. I think I saw watched this a bit also, right? I I caught the first three episodes. Oh, just watch okay. it. the premise is ridiculous. <laughs> Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. oh man, I couldn't. Like I, after the third episode, now I, I can't even remember what was it. There was a particular point in the middle of the episode. I was just like, you know, nope, nope, I'm done. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't. Like it. It just it doesn't know what it wants to be. Right. Like I think yeah. as great as the premise is, like you need to kind of stick to one thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think if they did the whole homeland thing, I would be totally into it. Yeah, sure. man. Yeah. Yeah. I I thought I thought so too. Yeah. Um, and next up, uh, very quickly, I'll be talking about Vivarium. Vivarium is a new sci-fi thriller starring Jesse Eisenberg and Imogen Poots. They are a young couple looking for the perfect home. That's when a strange real estate agent takes them to yonder, a mysterious suburban neighborhood of identical houses. The couple are creeped out by it and try to leave. But when they try to exit the labyrinth-like housing development, each route takes them back to where they started. So they find themselves stuck in this homogeneous suburban nightmare of uh, flavorless food and where even the cloud formations are uniform. Uh, soon, uh, even like some stock delivers a baby to them in a cardboard box. Uh, and the, the, the baby grows with uncanny speed into a human child, adding to their burden in this residential prison. Uh, so yes, this is the kind of the unthinked depiction of the suburbs as a soul-sucking nowhere zone. This time with an extra dose of anxiety and despair, uh, thanks to the thankless child uh, task of child rearing. So you can, like, if you can look past the obvious and very derivative metaphor, Vivarium has its moments of effective Twilight Zone-esque creepiness. Uh, the kid, for example, is a sociopathic parody of a normal child, screaming at random intervals and parroting its, its new parents in an unsettlingly adult voice. So there's this baby with an adult voice. Um, oh the... the the trouble is, right, like, the metaphor has kind of been done to death, don't you think? Yeah. Like, oh, the suburbs are, like, uniform and soulless, etc. Yeah, I get it. Domestic life is bland. Parenthood can ruin romantic relationships. And feeling stuck can bring out the worst in couples. Uh, yeah, so the whole thing kind of works for what it wants to be. But it's just so derivative. So I'm giving it a 5 out okay. of 10. Uh. Okay, finally, for quick hits, I'm talking about Trolls World Tour. Um... Trolls, amazingly, of all the movies released on VOD in the COVID-19 mm-hmm. age, right? This sequel to Trolls broke the record for weekend and opening day digital rentals. Wow. Trolls World Tour was and is still the number one title across all major on-demand platforms. You know, It's number one on Amazon. It's number one on Comcast. It's number one on Apple, Voodoo, Google, YouTube, DirecTV, Fandango. Uh, it is, and it has been number one for like a month and a half now. It's crazy. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Like Trolls has made more money than the first movie Trolls, which opened to a hundred million. Mm. You know? 
So it, it's crazy that they did this on VOD. Like, and it kind of a bit spells doom for cinemas, to be honest, mm. because this, this did so well. And it just goes to show that you know, theaters might be in trouble you know, if distributors decide to cut out the middleman. But you know, on to the movie itself. Uh, oh, by the way, I do have to say that Trolls, in one week, right, surpassed uh, Avengers Endgame's entire on-demand uh, sales. <laughs> well, to be fair, everybody had watched uh, Endgame already. <laughs> Fair enough, but everybody also wants to rewatch Endgame. Yeah, yeah, but it, the the number should be lesser, lah. People who want to rewatch Endgame. Also, true, true, true. kids. Yeah, yeah, kids and parents who are desperate enough to buy yeah. <laughs> for their kids. Fair yeah. enough. Okay, so Troll stars Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake. Uh, it's a sequel to the obviously as I mentioned the, the 2016 DreamWorks musical hit. This time, the trolls discover that they are but one of six different troll tribes scattered across the different lands. And each tribe, right, is dedicated to a different kind of music. So there is the funk tribe, there's the country tribe, there's the techno tribe, there's the classical tribe, there's the pop tribe, and the rock tribe of trolls. So the story involves a member of hard rock royalty, Queen Barb, played by Rachel Bloom, uh, who is ad- aided by her father, who is played by Ozzy Osbourne, who wants to destroy all other kind of, kinds of music genres and let rock reign supreme. Um, it has the fate of musical diversity at stake. That is, that is the stake of this movie. Lah. As, as Poppy and Brunch, you know, the, the trolls played by Anna Kendrick and Justin Timberlake, set out to all the other troll lands and try to unify all the genres against rock, who is looking to outstage them all. And what I can say is that, like, I think the premise is amazing. <laughs> like, speaking as a music journalist who, who has uh, spoken to so many, like, hard rock elitists, right? This feels so believable. And I think that kids will probably be tickled by the slapstick humor and the whimsical dance numbers. But adults like me, especially the adults who are into music, I wasn't not, I was not expecting to like this. But what I got was a very fun, creative movie with a pretty big message about musical diversity uh, and even monoculture versus uh, multiculture. Uh, and look, like, it's a troll's film. It's not high art. La. It's, it's, the narrative is flimsy outside of the musical numbers and, and the amazing premise. But I promise you, it's worth a watch. It's 6 out of 10. <laughs> okay, that's not too bad. Okay. Dude, man, uh, I, didn't, I did not enjoy, I did not expect enjoying. Trolls World Tour But I did yeah. <laughs> I did Love Love the premise Still cannot beat uh, Paddington 2 Dude Paddington 2 Is like the best movie Of the, the last decade <laughs> Yeah so. oh, The last decade Okay That year yeah. I think like If I ever came out With a list Of like the top 100 movies Of the 2010s Paddington 2 It's up there la. It's in top yeah. 3 la. It's in top yeah. 3 For sure I'm not sure Whether it's number 1 mm. But it, there's a reasonable Argument to be made That Paddington Was the best movie Of the last 10 years Alright man I'm down with that Alright. Uh next up, let, let's talk about uh Ghosts in the Shell SAC underscore twenty forty five. Yes. Is, did I get it yeah. right? Yeah, so SAC stands for standalone complex, right? Which is the title that, the subtitle that they've given for all the Ghosts in the Shell franchise series um since the original movie. um movie came out. Uh yeah, so um, yeah, Major Kusanagi, Bato, and, and Gang are back. Uh, in wait, wait, uh, uh, hold on. Uh. Is, is this like a reboot or is it a continuation? It's a continuation. There have oh, been... Oh, okay, okay. Okay, before a... you start, right, Aiza? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- doesn't the intro remind you of Westworld? No, I was just going to get to okay. that. It is almost a- exactly 
I mean, it is it is so similar. It is so similar. Like the the first episode when I saw it, the the title sequence, right? Uh, which has a great song, by yeah. the way. Hits you should definitely check it out. Uh, All right. It it's very Westworld esque. Almost exactly some of the scenes, especially the hand one, Hardy. Yeah. That one looks totally like almost shot for shot, um, which I find interesting. Uh, but uh, it's pretty apt. And I mean, uh, uh, clearly, Ghost in the Shell was the the premier cyborg. <laughs> Um, franchise, right? Before Westworld even came about, um, but yeah, uh, I guess so. Yeah, yeah. Um, oh no, right? I do. I do have to say that Westworld was around in the seventies because you know Michael Crichton wrote the book then. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, yeah, the look and feel of it. Yeah, when when you see the title sequence, you understand what Hardy and I are getting at. Like it's yeah. very gotcha. like it, it's too similar in my opinion. Yeah, even um, down to the okay. white color paint that they use. Yeah, understandably so. Um, but it's the year is uh, 2045. Major Kusanagi and gang are back. Uh, but this time round, due to certain things happening, if, if you catch up with like uh, um, with the previous seasons, not really seasons, the previous iterations of, of standalone complex, because each of them have standalone seasons, um, you kind of understand that uh, Major Kusanagi and the rest of the ghosts uh, have left section, uh, public section 9. And are now working as mercenaries. Uh, America has decided that the military-industrial war complex uh, is now best applied as sustainable war, in which professionals, uh, professional war mongers from every country, wage war against each other, while uh, to keep the world economy afloat, while keeping civilians and all out of the fray. Uh, so the major and her team find themselves as uh, war dogs in uh, this new climate of of uh, of uh, the world, right? Uh, yeah. So the major conflict, which I felt came a bit too late, is the discovery of a new species of human that they call post-humans, right? Uh, everybody has a cyber brain now. Everyone's connected to the network, but these post-humans have uh, been well, let, to simplify it, or it, they don't really give you that much detail because, like, it's still very, very early into um, the story. Uh, but essentially, they have evolved to the point where their cyber brains uh, are faster than even the best supercomputers available on the planet. And with oh, wow. those cyber brains, they are able to. They are basically superhuman. They are mutants, essentially. It's, it is mm-hmm. X Men meets Ghost in the Shell, essentially. Got, gotcha. Right? Okay. Um, yeah. Um, production IG did an amazing job with the production value. I think uh, it is easily one of the most impressive and most polished um, anime productions that have come out in a long while. Uh, just the attention to detail and even the little, little things like the way that they do the lights and the reflections off the ground and like the shadows and all of that is pretty mind-blowing. Um, of course, the uh, original voice cast are back, which kind of lends a kind of familiarity uh, to um, the whole um, the whole season. Um, all in all, okay, so it it's the action pieces are great, right? The action is great. I think the music is great. Uh, the acting is on point, and like it's very hard to f- to fault a cast that have been kind of working together on the same. Uh, as the same characters for almost what one and a half decades now, um, mm-hmm. the the my main issue was pacing. Right, um, you don't 
the first six episodes of this season, and there's only 13 episodes, mind you, uh, is basically a bit of world building and a lot of action set pieces, right? Uh, getting okay. the team together, where they're at, and kind of like picking off where they left off with the last kind of standalone complex. Uh, I didn't feel that that was necessary. Not six episodes long of necessary. Uh, the seventh episode is a standalone filler episode with Bato in a Wow. in the midst of a bank heist committed by octogenarians it's hilariously funny I really <laughs> enjoyed it uh, because it is so in character with what, what you imagine Bato to be uh, yeah. but again that is another episode out of what is a very short season already uh, you yeah. only get to the fact that post humans exist in episode 8 which only gives you 5 episodes Right, and then oh. from there you don't even focus that much. <clears throat> you don't even focus that much on um, like a particular post-human and kind of like pursuing them, because now the new section nine uh, is is in charge of hunting down post-humans all over the world. There's some political intrigue involving the fact that Japan's new prime minister is actually used to be American and now is a Japanese citizen. Uh, and like America, you meet this weird NSA agent that looks exactly like Agent Smith from The Matrix, and who oh, also wow. call, he's also called Agent Smith, and it's pretty ridiculous. Uh, <laughs> okay. Yeah. So I mean, like there are these little little things that would have made like a great kind of like season, a bit like uh, I don't know if I should take you seriously. Mm. Um. Yeah, and, and it becomes a bit of a procedural after that. Um. Some of the themes though and I think this is what is most important for me for any sort of uh, ghost in a shell uh, um, en- entry is that it asks some very interesting questions like in, in, in the age where technology is indistinguishable from our physical abilities right or they are so, it's so integrated like what does it really mean to be human right uh, and that's something that the original movie already kind of like delved into but um, this new Ghost in the Shell sacrifices a lot of that scenery, chewing, kind of like existentialist pondering for a lot more action set pieces, action. Uh, which Take is it, yeah. fine. Um, and I think it works. But at the same time, I do kind of miss that. Um, mm. The whole idea that everyone is kind of connected to a network setting also allows for these really bizarre kind of virtual reality augmented reality um, scenes, right, that that border on fantastical. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, I do feel like, um, as, as far as I know, that this is only going to be the first season of this, uh, this particular uh, run. Uh, so oh, wow. I am looking forward to more. Um, the cases that they have taken up so far are <coughs> very interesting and very kind of disconcerting in the manner in which, you know, like what are the post-humans trying to do, right? Uh, the, the general consensus is they want, you know, to to see the established order kind of fall and, like, establish a new world where post-humans are at the top. But apparently, there are only 14 of them. So, like, what is that? And then diff- all of them have, like, different kind of motivations based upon the people who they were before they became post-humans. And there's one particular... Um, the last arc, right, is about a high school kid who becomes post-human and struggles with his ability to... um, He struggles with his identity. He was already struggling as a a teenage high school student, right? He was kind of reserved and a bit of an otaku. 
uh, and yeah. then now the fact that he is no longer w- even human anymore, right? And how that feeds into his uh, motivation and stuff like that. It was a fascinating kind of character study that they managed to do pretty succinctly in like two episodes. So that wasn't too bad, but uh, the it, it ended oddly. It felt a lot more like a 24-episode season cut into half. Uh, still oh. highly recommend it. I'm going to give it a 7. Just for the sheer, yeah, just for the sheer like production value that they are bringing to the table, and the fact Mm -hmm. that I think by and large it stays very true to what you are expecting from a Ghost in a Shell entry to the franchise. Uh, Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's pretty much it. So, uh, mixed feelings, lah. Uh, I mean, it's not great. It's not perfect. I mean, like, okay. the original animated movie is a classic. It's a work of art, right? That, that yeah. is held by many to be, you know, one of the greatest anime or animations ever made uh, mm-hmm. just because of the quality of it. And, like, uh, for that time, it was groundbreaking. Uh, so there's a lot to live up to. And I think, like, different standalone complexes over the years have done it uh, to varying degrees of um, success, I think right. like this new entry here coming off the back of of Scarjo's version, <laughs> <laughs> okay, of, of Major Kuzanagi is is a little different, right? And clearly, like they realize that today's audience isn't going to be as kind to you know scene chewing and like existential uh. pondering as other people. So I, they are taking a slightly different approach. To that, mm. there aren't as many like long monologues or like staring out into the ocean. There aren't as many, mm. you know, like Major Kusanagi like diving in the water. Like there aren't oh. as many of those scenes, but it's still an incredibly beautiful anime um, mm. to watch. And the action set pieces are kind of kind of sick. They're kind of mad, like John Wick level kind of nice. like coordination, which is really, really quite a joy to watch. So it is something different, but something at the same time a lot of the same, and I think it's worth a watch. So it's a seven for me. Awesome. Okay. Uh, and we're gonna wrap up this episode with uh, the poll list. Uh, this month I'll be talking about a series of novels called the Wayfarer series. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's written by Becky Chambers. It's a series of novels that is very rare in science fiction. It's, it's the rare sci-fi universe that dares to imagine a hopeful future for humanity. In, in a real world that already feels like a dystopian future, it's, it's really beautiful to find something this uh, warmly written and warmly optimistic. Um, Chambers writes sci-fi about, a far fu- about far future humans who've taken to the stars. Mm-hmm. Uh, her work is kind of influenced by Farscape and Firefly in that it trends towards a galaxy of rusty, beaten-up spacecraft and wisecracking opportunists mm-hmm. more than the gleaming ideals of the Star Trek franchise, for example. Um, where there are too many other sci-fi writers that have taken the you know, scuzziness of universes, like Chambers, and written stories that are similarly scuzzy. Uh, Chambers writes books about how people and, and the aliens who love them take care of each other in a world far bigger and far weirder than our own. Uh, Chambers' three novels, uh, The Long Way to a Small Angry Planet, uh, A Closed and Common Orbit, and A Record of a Space One Few, are all set in the same universe, where humanity made it out to where other intelligent species lived and soon found themselves near the bottom of the galactic political order Mm. Uh, it's kind of a recurring gag throughout the books that species think that humans have a horrible smell Uh, (laughs) yes we are uh, we are part of a galactic governing order and no nobody gives a shit what we think Uh, it's a refreshing change from the human centric spin of most 
space-faring sci-fi. Yeah. And even even though all three books have different human protagonists, they're all scraping to make the most of lives in which they're often looked down upon. Uh, you can read the three novels in any order, but I recommend reading them in the publication order if you want to see uh, Chambers uh, develop as an author. Mm-hmm. She gets better as it grows along. Uh, in the Wayfarer series, human beings uh, wrecked the earth uh, at some point in the 21st century because, you know, of course we did. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then started sending expeditions into space in hopes of finding something else. Uh, the experience with a planet destroyed by our greed has made humanity nicer, actually, sure, but also less prone to conflict in general, mm. a thing that holds us back in some ways. Uh, so if the rest of the galaxy decides that we smell bad, we are too polite to call them on it. Essentially, Earth people have turned into Canadians. Um, <laughs> we, we, we're just nicer overall uh, because yeah. we've learned from our mistakes. Yeah. You know? uh, so it's all about, it, it focuses a lot about on interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. Uh, while they may be caught up in uh, galactic events at various points in, in the story or in their lives, uh, but like their relationships and loves are more important than all these big things going on in the world or in the universe. Uh, some of it are like road trip novels with uh, multiple point of view characters uh, interacting across many disparate cultures and species. It's uh, it, intensely humane and positive, uh, even as it acknowledges that darkness does exist. Uh, it's all beautiful, you know. Like it has uh, it has so many amazing interplanetary adventures with wonderful characters and fun discoveries. It has like cool descriptions of futuristic technologies and neat spaceships and. And if you want to read more positive, diverse sci-fi stories where characters are supportive of one another and grow through relationships and, and grow through found families, uh, then you'll find them in, in Becky Chambers' uh, Wayfarer series. You know, um, this, The stories are also meaningful. It's a bit like, um, I don't know, how do I find it? Like a TV allegory would be more like The Good Place mm-hmm. or, or Steven Universe. Ah. Uh, it has that kind of vibe. Uh, Interesting. Instead of huge battles and guns blazing and blood spattering, Chambers offers intelligent, quiet storytelling that is as fun to read as it is moving. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the heart of the Wayfarer series are the remarkably well-crafted you know, interpersonal relationships uh, between humans and aliens from all walks of life. Uh, her ability to place you in the world as though you're sitting there having dinner in, in the spaceship garden with your new friends is nothing short of magical. And I, I, personally, I feel like this is kind of what Picard should have been. Uh, oh. Instead, you know, I, I, you know, well, we already reviewed Picard, la, so I'm not yeah. going back into it. La. <laughs> yeah, so I, 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 I just felt like Picard was like Deep Space Nine for mm-hmm. teens. Uh, um, <laughs> who, you know, you know, cursing means that we are serious and adult. Picard Anyways, uh, just to be clear, <laughs> yeah, so many times in here. <laughs> Uh, just to be clear, I'm, I'm not knocking sci-fi that is dark or action-packed or more traditionally a hero story. A lot of great stories and books and shows and films fall into those categories. Mm-hmm. But that's just the thing. There's so many of them. Uh, but there are so few things like the Wayfarer series, which makes it feel like a beautiful breath of fresh air in the, in the genre. So uh, I'm giving us an 8 out of 10 and uh, do pick up all of uh, Becky Chambers' books. You cool. can buy it on Amazon if you want to. Yeah. All right. Uh, before we talk about what we're going to talk about, you know, next month, uh, should we announce that next episode is actually uh, Hardy's last yeah. episode? It'll be my last episode. Yeah. Uh, genre Equality 30 yeah. is a can't miss because it's uh, Hardy's farewell. Lucky episode. it's not mm. named like Hard Hits, uh, where if I leave, then <laughs> it doesn't make sense. I will just have to find another hard. <laughs> yeah. 
Oh, I asked Shafiq to change his name. <laughs> Anyways, uh, it is Hadi's farewell episode, so it's very mm-hmm. sad. But we will be talking about some of Hadi's uh, favorite shows, uh, such as uh, Star Wars and Clone Wars. Westworld. And in- Westworld. Uh, yes, well, I have a lot to say about Westworld. I I think it is. Just another version of it death is right. This season. Uh, yeah. When you you all yeah. were talking about yeah. death just now, the whole time I was like, "Isn't that Westworld?" Yeah, <laughs> yeah like Rohobo. Ro- Ro- it's, yeah. it's basic. It's basically yeah. death. So. <laughs> just just very different approaches, lah. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's it's the if you take the same concept and take two different filmmakers, how would they look? And this is a Nolan story. Yeah. <laughs> whereas death is a Garland yeah. story, lah. Uh, obviously, Hadi and Isa are big fans of uh, Star Wars Clone Wars, and apparently the season has yes. been great, right? Yeah, it's been great. I haven't nice. caught up yet, but I will see. We'll yeah. see. Okay. Awesome. Um, we'll also be talking about Rick and Morty, which uh, airs the final five episodes of its latest season uh, next month. Mm-hmm. Uh, there is a new show by the creator of Rick and Morty uh, called Solar Opposites that is debuting just a few days after Rick and Morty. Um, Bizarre. Uh, we. I'm. There's a lot of other bizarre things that I want to talk about, but I don't want to kind of spoil it. There is a movie called Butt Boy that I'm kind of dying to talk mm-hmm. about. Um, it's a a story about someone who likes to put things up their butt as a sexual fetish. Uh, but okay, this is yeah. a short premise, uh, But <laughs> one day he goes no too far, intended. and then he starts kidnapping, and then he starts kidnapping children and and putting them up his butt, What? and then they disappear. Uh, and then it. Then we shift to like a detective who's trying to find these kids. So it's like shot like a David Fincher movie, but oh, it's about oh. a guy who stuffs kids up his butt. It's pretty, it's pretty insane. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, all right, all right. I'm down. So yeah, I'll, I'll be I'll be talking about that in quick hits. Uh, and I saw like if you're free, can you talk about Shira and the Princesses of Power, the final ever season actually? Oh yeah. Uh okay, cool. Yeah yeah, I'll take that. Nice. Yeah. Um. We'll be back next month, guys. But till then, do remember to stay home. If you're under lockdown, please obey all the rules in your local area. Don't be irresponsible. Yes. And yeah, I mean, we're we're all being very good boys here because we are recording remotely. We're mm-hmm. not meeting. Yeah. We are trying to be as uh, we're trying to adhere to social yeah, distancing. Yeah, man. Yeah. Doing quite a good job. So stay yeah, safe. Man. Wash your hands. Wear your mask. Wash your hands. Yep. Yep. Indeed. And I've I've lots to say about Westworld. By the way, I've not. Enjoyed the last couple of episodes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we will talk about we'll, it more. Okay, we'll get to it. Yeah, we will. We'll talk about that more. Yeah, and and also, of course, like it's Hardy's final episode, so definitely tune in. We'll he'll say mm-hmm. goodbye and he'll give some parting thoughts. All then, right. Yeah. Uh, till then, uh, you'll hear Hardy one more time. But till then, I'm Hardy. I'm Isa. Uh, Bye. goodbye, guys. Ciao.